no one would know. What's up? We're live. We're live. We're live. Good morning. Guten Morgen. Unless yeah. it is not morning. In well, which case, yeah, good, good whatever. Guten Tag. <laughs> guten Tag, Eric. Yes. Yeah, it's afternoon for you. I did squeeze in a little nap today because I didn't really oh. well the past couple of days. All Feels right. like I've been doing a podcast every day for the last <laughs> five days. I mean, you have been uh, recording you're a, a warrior. Lot. Yeah, you're. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought I burned the candle at both ends, but I think I, I think <laughs> I reserved that title for you, my friend. Yeah, we got the uh, the first episode of uh, um, the Field Her podcast is, has, is you know it's that you guys would know it's like you know how like when you record your first video or like you know when you guys did your first podcast you're like okay it's done now it's real kind of yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's great when it finally materializes like that yeah yeah um what are you guys drinking this morning or afternoon well i started with blue bottle coffee is that a brand or Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's, a San Francisco coffee place inside like the ferry terminal. But anyway, I already got two of those in me. So now I switched to tea. Otherwise, I'm going to be an insane person. Bouncing off the freaking ceiling. (laughs) I already kind of do that without the coffee. So, (laughs) Mm, yeah. So it takes three, three cups. And that's when you're over the edge. That's where where we lose. And I'll be feeling it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Maybe that's my problem. I drink like six. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be like, just like you, Eric, I drink like two or three big old tall glasses uh, a day, especially when I was still in Santa Barbara. It was like morning coffee ritual after lunch coffee ritual. Damn. <laughs> and then uh, did that Damn. for years. And then lately it's now I've actually cut it back where I reserve my coffee drinking for this. I actually don't really... Uh, drink much coffee before work anymore because I don't know actually you're a social drinker I don't know why anymore I'm such a like a coffee snob too but maybe it's because (laughs) it does like if I do too much like over time it like hurts my stomach a lot so yeah no that's the problem I had in in college I got up to the four or five cup range but it was like nope I I am being destroyed from the inside (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah so we cut that back yeah yeah, so I when I go to the grocery store, if I'm rushed, um, like if I I'm, I'm just trying to quick go through, I always go for my old old faithful, which is uh, the Pete's Coffee Major Dickinson's blend, mm-hmm. and it's okay. uh it's like a nice dark medium dark, but it's got a lot of flavor, and I for the you know I like to I I keep the beans in like a vacuum sealed container so they're all fresh. I want to take them out and grind them. It's like mm, the best smell. And then, you know, pour it in the French press. And, oh my goodness. I love it. I, you know, the, the right bean and the right flavor and everything is perfect. That's yeah. what it, that's what it's Absolutely. about. Then you yeah. don't need any creamers or additives. Like you can ease into coffee, starting with all sorts of sugary sweeteners and stuff. If you're doing coffee, right. The nose drinks first. Ooh. Oh, I like it. The nose drinks first. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I drink mine black. So, oh yeah, me too. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's the way. The only yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, that's good. 
Ooh, um, morning, everyone. Uh, <laughs> Carly's asking who's going to da Daytona. Um, when is Daytona? I don't they know. don't it's have Daytona in, in California. Yeah, I don't know. I, what is this Daytona you speak of? August? August yeah, typically huh? it's in August. Yeah. Okay. Well, shoot. Who knows, man? I uh, I can't even plan that far in advance. COVID won't let me. <laughs> Boost, yeah. Bustello for a daily drinker and Puerto Rican coffee in a percolator for weekend drink. Oh, down to a science, Eric. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Tony says eight cups by 1 p.m. Tony, that's why you're bald. <laughs> the coffee has burned your hair follicles, sir. Go back to playing with your go back to playing with your sea snakes. <laughs> that's great. Carly says Daytona's the third week of August. Well, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Oh, bangs. Uh-oh. <laughs> bangs. Oh gosh. <laughs> Those are good, but like I, That's I dangerous. get, I try one and I'll like have a sip and I'm like, whoa, way too much yeah. sugar. Oh, but I'm committed now. And then I won't touch them for weeks. Yeah. That's a little bit too, too high octane for me. Ooh, looks like our, uh, our FedEx insider, Mr. Ryan Cox says, uh, don't ship this week. FedEx is in a tizzy backups all across the country. Right. And Ryan, I am less bald than Tony, sir. <laughs> there's there's degrees to this <laughs> cracking a can you damn right it is that stuff's gnarly oh show off lucas you too <laughs> you know what I, you know what the beauty of being bald is is i get to represent my friends really awesome gear that they give me that's a pretty good hat yeah and it's uh it's one of the mesh snapbacks trucker hat so uh thank you glenn shout out to glenn he uh he's Man, he makes killer colubrids, and I'm getting a colubrid bug bad these days. Yeah, it's not you have. Good. I've seen this. It's not good. It's not good. You're going down all well, you road. start doing a podcast about him. What would you expect to happen? <laughs> Look, I only meant to do that just to give the colubrids some love. I figured, you know, with the right people involved, at least, you know, one half of uh, NPR, it's got to be caliber stuff. And I figured, you know, we just do them some justice. But I didn't realize it was going to, like, put a noose around me. And, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so, I get it. The same thing's happening to me with the aspidites. <laughs> yeah, well, but you've already been, like, into them. You know, that's kind of like your thing. For me, it was like I was so far left with all these other species and I sort of cleared house and I was coming back to just, you know, carpets and a few tertiaries. And then all of a sudden I'm like, and yanked off course again. I'm like, where does this come from? <laughs> so, Fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, for our listeners, I, I went to work last week one day and uh, unbeknownst to me, there were transactions made and I somehow came home with a Mandarin rat snake. So Somehow they are cool. <laughs> They're That's badass. Cool you know, I mean, it's hard to beat. They beat that. That They're like the jungle carpet of rat snakes. Yeah. As far as their looks. And yeah. I've been watching YouTube videos, just kind of scrolling through, seeing what people are showing about them. And right. dude, they get impressively good size, like bigger than a Cali King. Like yeah. they look <laughs> sick. And now I'm like, Oh, well, I think I need a male now. <laughs> Damn it! Why is this happening? And they're one of those ones you want to try to keep, like in the seventies, right? Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not even running heat on on this little one. She's just sitting on top in quarantine, sitting on top of the bullfrog tank, and sure. um, 
Yeah. That's kind of nice. Yeah, she gets the ebb and flow of the temperatures through the window and whatever the tank's doing heat-wise. So anyway. Very cool. Very yeah. Cool. So collier brids are poisoning my my blood. <laughs> but I'll be okay with it. I've got I've got more Morelia than anything. So <laughs> Yeah, I see Owen moving more and more away from Morelia being his main thing and every year it goes by you know the dangerous thing is now he's got a wife who's a vet so like he can really tackle everything head on and she's right there and they're in a house so he's got space to just go hog wild yeah i mean can you blame well i've seen his house recently yeah and he's run out of space (laughs) (laughs) it didn't take long I believe it. I've always wondered how he puts all that in there. He's like, I'm building these cages and I'm building these cages. I'm like, those species just rattled off are like nine foot colubrids. And he's got how many of them? How much right. space does he have? <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. Those he's, falsies he got are going to grow up. Dude. And be pretty big. <laughs> seven. You're looking what at What size seven, did I get? Seven feet? So I've seven worked or with eight. A, yeah. I've worked yeah. with a seven and a half foot male for sure. Loafman says uh, a lot of his girls are eight feet. Yeah. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. I it's believe like it. it's a slender eight feet to an yeah. extent, but still a big snake. <laughs> yeah, you're still talking an animal that's like three inches in diameter. Yeah. Easily right. 10 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, big animal. So Wow. That is a big snake. Yeah, yeah. they're fun when they, when they like come charging at you. Dude, I used to work with one in San Barbara Zoo, and uh, he was amazing. He was such a good snake, so predictable, which made it really easy to work with him. But you'd have to open the door with a, a 40 inch hook, but keep the door held open, have food on forceps, stand back as far as you can and just turn and uh, the door and shove food right in front of him because he'd <laughs> launch out the freaking door at you. It was so much fun. Yeah. And it was always in this corner where you're backed up wow. against the, the dart frog exhibit. So you really have nowhere to go but left. And that's where your backup is. So then they have to go backwards too. And you got to not trip over the sink. And it's a narrow hall. It's so much fun, dude. So much fun. That's such a ferocious feeding response. Yes. They come out and chase for food. They just Mm -hmm. pursue. Yeah. It's funny watching some of Lori's videos. She's training falsies Mm -hmm. and just the responses she's getting out of that snake compared to what she gets out of the brettles. Is hilarious. Totally like it, it's it good. Totally That's is. a great species to do that with. Oh yeah, and yeah. and they're smart. You know that snake is absolutely responding to her target already, but in like a cracked out way. Whereas yeah. like the brettles python will follow it slowly. The falsies like target, target. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. My Kribos would probably do that if I put effort into it. I have to remember to wear shoes when I'm feeding my male because he's on the bottom enclosure. <laughs> And if he comes out, he'll go right past the food sometimes. And my feet look just like his food occasionally. So he's just like, ah, and then you see me doing the hot feet, hot feet. Like, Pinkies, oh, but pinky Dude. toe. <laughs> yeah, 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 wrong kind of pinky. Yeah. Um, Have you ever been tail whipped by a falsie? Uh, no, I've been tail whipped by bull snakes, though. It's crazy the way they do it. Just like a monitor. Just whack. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Really? I love that behavior. It's I cool. didn't know that. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, even the little ones that I have, they'll they'll tail whip me. They'll tail whip tongs when I'm feeding yeah. and they're not into it. Yeah, <laughs> they're cool. Um, Herpetoculture Network. So I'm assuming this is Justin or Phil. What species on the docket 
or uh, I guess it could also be Jake, what species are on the docket for upcoming hybrid corner shows? The next two, well, we've recorded a few. I don't know which ones are out currently. Uh, there's supposed to be one that's going to be dropped tomorrow, I think. I can tell you in a second. Um, let's go to the Colubrid Corner file folder. Oh, it's <laughs> um, Justin. Hi, Justin. <clears throat> we got... Hi, Justin. Uh, did we do the the Jackson Tree Snake was the one that yeah, was the last that one? Yeah, one, okay. that one's out. Yeah. So that was episode number five. So number six is the Rhombic Egg Eater. Ah, that'll Ooh. be a good one. That'll be a fun one. I forgot I did that one. Then number eight is the Pearl Banded Rat Snake. That thing is cool. Yeah. And then number seven is, oh, it's a Mad, Mad Giant Hog. I guess. Yeah, we did the giant mad hogs. Okay. And then, and then we've got a whole. I've got a whole list of things that we're going to keep recording. So I have to keep up on what's out and what we've recorded and what's next. So didn't want to miss speak on that one. So thank you, Eric. Yeah. Um, Alex Oliver asks. Yes. Would you consider the highlighter JCP line pure jungles at this point? Who? Uh, so simple answer. No, no. <laughs> Simple answer is no. And reason being, think of it like this. Pure, think of pu- using the word pure as like an ultimatum, like an undeniable ultimatum, like Nick Mutton lineage level of confirmation. That doesn't exist for highlighter. So no, you can't use pure without a hundred percent certainty in my opinion. And I don't even like using the word pure with that. You know, I just, just leave it out. Yeah. If it's a cross, I'll tell you. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's the thing, Alex. It it's it's not a known cross, right? Well, you can't confirm it's a cross just like you can't confirm it's pure. There are just missing pieces of the puzzle along the way. There you know, like if you're if you're digging through jungle lineage long enough or you know, around long enough and and probe around there's always the random really nice show jungle that was found and didn't really have much background behind it but it was a nice looking jungle and and it was you know beautiful back in the day that's all they had sort of thing so they mixed it in and no big deal and so there's there's like different levels of you know like known pure and it's only a jungle as far as we know but we can't confirm anything else so that's how i think of it Jungles are probably the hardest of the carpet pythons, in my opinion, um, to follow that lineage because they've been bred so much. Um, mm-hmm. I would I would dare to say they've been bred the most out of the carpets. Um, I agree. Would you guys? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not wrong there. And it's it's the hardest to sort of track back because you'll have these sort of what you're saying, Riley. It's like you'll have these breedings where everything sort of lines up and then you'll get to one spot and then you either the breeder that bred them at some point is out of it and there's no way to contact them and, Mm -hmm. or they don't remember where they got it from, Mm -hmm. which then puts the animal in question. Um, It's just a matter to me, it's just a matter of, are you willing to accept that those question marks, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. if you're somebody where you you draw the line in the sand, Right. right. If you're somebody on Nick's level, 
you're you're probably not going to accept any question marks. Right. And then, of course, it could all blow up if the genetic data tells us that jungles and coastals are the same thing. <laughs> you know, I, speaking of that, I was listening yeah. to Joe Phelan's podcast the other day with Dr. Loafman on it. Uh, oh, on the taxonomy? About, yeah, on the colubrid taxonomy. Yeah. And, and that had me thinking about that that as well. And it's it's a different approach towards how you organize and, and categorize things. And you got to pick where you stand. And there's a lot of different right. approaches, but then there's, what's the term for it when they use like multiple approaches towards uh, the species? There's different definition. species concepts. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the one, the one concept that like uses a bunch of aspects from all the concepts, I'm forgetting the term right now. Oh. Um, no, it was like it used evolution. It used this. It used a bunch of right. others. Anyway, the yeah. way I took it was, you know, according to our technology as it stands now and what we define as species and and not species level differences is just like the 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 DNA data, just like the numbers running. But then, you know, the other definitions beyond that subspecies or localities are sort of they don't show up in the DNA. So it's more of a phenotypic right. variation based on environmental, you know, things going on and survival strategies for that particular area and that particular population. And so, although, right. you know, according to the DNA or, you know, these rat snakes along the Eastern corridor are all the same, you know, or whatever they aren't because they occupy different niches and sure. habitats and they look and behave differently and have different, you know, methods to survival. So I don't know. It was yeah. really interesting. And I think about that with carpets a lot and uh, just how yeah. we categorize stuff. A species that the, the concept of a species is purely a theory and there's so many different ways to slice it as yeah. to what you decide warrants that label. Yeah. Right? Yeah, um, Ryan Cox said it right here. We see the phenotypic plasticity, but the genotypes don't express it. Right. And then on the flip side, you could have two green trees that look exactly the same, but they're 11% genetically yeah. different on the yeah. inside. Right. Yeah. You know, that's so, the opposite. So do you, I, I, you know, like doing this for so many years and ta especially the carpets, because they seem to be like one of those taxonomy clusters <laughs> you know it's like it's like the rat snakes in the u.s you know i yeah. would imagine is the same um but i think like you uh you know it's it's we forget that taxonomy is forever changing and we're mm -hmm. seeing a snapshot of it right now currently yeah. so meaning that in a million years from now if the world is still here and we haven't destroyed it and we're still here and all this stuff you know, jungle carpets may evolve to be a full species, similar to like what you've seen with bread lie or or Bradley uh -huh. or, uh, um, you know, uh, imbricata, you know, where uh -huh. they've been separated for so long. You know, they still they're sort of a sister species to that uh, group, but they've evolved on their own trajectory. You know, yeah, sort of yeah. was the thought with, uh, you know, IJs as well. Like, you know, now that they're separated, you know, at one point. They were, you know, I think in one of the last talks I saw with Nick, he was talking mm -hmm. about how everything pretty much from that top end of Australia and Papua New Guinea is probably related, you know, yeah. uh, somehow. Yeah. Um, which wouldn't that throw a whole 
kicking the <laughs> kicking yeah. the you know, you know what I mean? Because remember remember on MP for years how people would argue that Darwin's and IJs are not the yeah. same and yeah. like, no they look the same. It doesn't matter, they're not the same. Yeah. Hey, shut up. <laughs> you know. Um <laughs> but yep. I don't know. It's 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 one of these weird things where you're just sort of seeing this snapshot right in front of you, you know, and, and basically the jungles carpet is basically evolved coastal carpet to live in the rainforest. Yep. And you know, the rainforest starts to disappear, and then you start to see more coastal carpets and less jungle carpets, and you know, vice versa. And then there's that intergrade zone. <laughs> no, <laughs> we the dirty intergrade zone. <laughs> oh, well, the weird thing is, is like with jungles and coastals, there's really, I mean, I guess there is sort of an intergrade zone, but it's so hard to tell because when you look at wild. I've looked at so many wild carpet pythons that it's what you think is one sometimes doesn't line up with what we see. And then you got these yeah. localities that we have in the hobby, which sort of has imprinted on our brain to, to have a certain look. And when you see that, you automatically think, oh, well, that's a coastal or that's a that's a Rockhampton coastal. And I've seen Rockhampton coastals that look like jungles. So, mm-hmm. you know, right. Yeah. It's, it's just so tough, you know? Uh, yeah. There's just something to be said for like not putting a hundred percent of your, your definitions based on how the animals look. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with carpets. I mean, they're literally named a common name is carpet Python because they are so variable and ornate, like, you know, Oriental rugs and carpets and fancy, you know, wall tapestry carpets. So like it's in the name, they're going to look ridiculously variable. Right. Yeah. So what what's in a color morph? Huh? <laughs> so <Pigment. laughs> Big, yeah, right? yeah. Touche. <laughs> Smart ass. Hey everyone, did you know Lucas is in grad school? Oh <laughs> so Smart. proud of him. Sorry. Smart guy. Smart guy over here. I didn't mean to be a smart ass. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, no. Riley. No, we're happy to we're happy to have you you here with your knowledge and insight. <laughs> oh, there was a question I didn't get to listen to it a hundred percent yet, but you guys were talking about the rough scales. Um, the founder group was three point two. Mm. Really, the so three males and two females is the founder group. That's what At that's the what Australia uh, Reptile Park. Those are the yeah. ones that survived and or bred. Out yeah, of the they, 10, a, they had like a 10 or a dozen. No, they had they 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 were given permits to go and collect uh 3.2. That's what they oh, got. They I think it's a random number. Yeah. Um I don't know why 3.2, but uh you know, I hmm. you know, I guess so they can have different ma- you know, males. I don't know. Why wouldn't you go 3.3? I don't know. I I don't know. I'm not or I'm not sure. 3.4. Or 4.4? Well, finding the 3.2 proved out to be next to impossible. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I'm sure they're happy to get what they could. I I had heard that there were three animals total, so it's that's new to me that there were more than that. That's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's where the question came. Somebody asked me about hypo (laughs) Riley. (laughs) Yeah, there's a ask about your your hypo plans. Okay, so hypo plant. So I have a hypo male and a caramel hypo female. Um, oh. 
Yeah. Um, I'll first say for the record, for the people that think it's the same thing, it is not the same thing. It is no. it's definitely not. Definitely. Whereas with caramel, you don't really get a reduction in black. Um, but with the hypo, you do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the most stellar of them, uh, of, of those, uh, let me see if I can find a picture and um, maybe I can share it. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, because we can we can show photos in this chat. Yeah, let's see. Hypo. Do we do we figure out how to do that? I didn't yeah, he did the last episode. Ah, yeah. Yeah. the wizard, the grand wizard. Beard <laughs> is getting gnarly. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Maybe I'll donate it to a uh, locks for Lucas. <laughs> can you glue it onto your face? <laughs> Look at this thing. It's like a sweater. This um, is this is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. You have to be here to see it. <laughs> so Eric you're Eric, you're pulling up uh, you're pulling up. I'm a trying photo. to find uh, yeah, I was trying to find the one picture, but I don't Hmm. Um, while you look for that i will that's a good question i will answer this any rough estimations on the number of generations into inbreeding or into breeding before we begin seeing the problems i know it's so i feel like i've read several different versions of research and papers and hypotheses about it but it seems like within the first five for most species you tend not to have issues after five generations you start seeing those those manifestations Mm -hmm. um and i think I think it varies from species to species. Certain island species of boas are very resistant to inbreeding depression. Um, it, it can vary. So I, I, me personally, I don't think I would go more than like three or four generations without outcrossing unless I was really gunning for a certain specific outcome. But yeah, I've always kind of, I forget where I learned it, but within five generations for a lot of snakes, it tends right. to be safe. And I think he's he's talking about that rough scale, yeah, uh, stuff yeah. in in particular, which of course we can't outcross. And uh, yeah, it'll be it interesting. Is, it's a consideration for sure. Yeah. I mean, without naming names, I know there was one breeder in this past season that had one hatch with like the umbilical slit, like it never closed up, like it was just oh. a giant hole. Oh. you know, so that could be a sign of of things. I've to seen come. that in I've seen that in turtles every once in a while. They're they're. Uh, their plaster just won't close and they just right. have this weird like whole, ugh, ugh, yeah right. it's all the guts spilling out no good yeah. not good yeah <laughs> huh. yeah but that's a good point Riley that it is specific to the natural history and how prone to those kinds of issues they mm-hmm. can be right like you talk about island populations when you look at where we know rough scales to be just that yes. little dot you know <clears throat> you have yeah. to imagine that to some extent they function as an island population and it's such a small zone and they can't leave. (laughs) So they might be more resilient to that than, than Mm -hmm. other species, perhaps just speculating, but eventually it all will come back to rear its head, you know? Yeah. It seems, uh, (laughs) seems like you outcross a roughie too. (laughs) Mm. Rough crows. More roughies. <laughs> yeah, more roughies. Find different. Yeah, I guess eventually you just stop. 
what happens to the first person to breed a ruffy to a green tree? What do we do to them? They, they make, they it's been done. They oh no! It's been done. yeah, it's been done. It's been done in Australia. Of course, the result the results were not that good. So kind of <laughs> like that. A, a puke, a puke brown or diarrhea green, like yeah. half bumpy, weird chondro. Yeah, I you have like. Green. Uh, <laughs> Don't think too hard about that. <laughs> uh, why I can't find uh, man. I don't know. I can't find the picture. Hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, for me, I you know, I don't know. I used to be, um, I'm, you know, really into the morphs and stuff, and I guess I've sort of moved away from that, and I just don't see myself, you know, I, I was originally going to breed it to, like, uh, you know, z- caramel zebras and stuff like that, but I don't know. I'll probably just breed it to tigers because, you know, some of those hypo tigers are just – Next Smoking. level, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're yeah. just they're they're just crazy. The one um, Nick posted with the other hypo recently, he posted a photo of a, a hypo and a hypo tiger. He's like, Yeah, it's not the best tiger, not the best striping. I'm like, holy crap, dude, that's amazing. He's just like, Man, it's, it could be better. I'm like, yeah, it could be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna I, you know, honestly, I, I haven't I think I'm just going to breed diamonds this year. Um, nice. And inlands is going to be my two. Um, I'm oh, really yeah. trying to just focus on being able to produce them. So uh, I think I've given everything else off. Um, so that's awesome. Are you going to be pairing in like three weeks time or so? I think so. Uh, we've, we've gotten bombarded as everybody, I think in the U S yeah, there's a lot of snow and rain. with crazy. I mean, we have like a foot of snow here wow. it's supposed to snow again tomorrow i think and then thursday again it's it's crazy <laughs> we're like making up for lost time i guess yeah. but um yeah i think uh once uh you know once we get a little bit warmer weather i'll i'll start uh bringing them back up and offering them food and then putting them together and hoping for the best so from what i've heard they're pretty easy to breed okay um you know, inlands. Uh, I know you guys were talking about them as well. Um, the the mulg line seems to be easier to breed than the Schofield line, which mm-hmm. was sort of led me to my thought about um, one of the things to talk about today is like um, you know with white lips and scrubs and species like that. I even think maybe probably Ball and I um, that they're very mate selective. Uh, mm, ring pythons mm. fall into that category probably because they're pretty much orange and black white lips but yeah <laughs> pretty um, much they act like them too but uh yeah I, I don't know i do you guys have any do you see any issues i haven't really run into it too much with with carpets but i would imagine that they have to be somewhat selective you know i i don't know What's your, what do you think? Maybe I, I like to chalk up my lack of success with Darwin's to mate selection issues. Cause I'm not willing to admit that I can't breed Darwin's. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I could get lucky, but um, yeah, no, I, I definitely think there's something to it. Um, you know, we talk about the confidence of these animals a lot and we talk about how they have various personalities. And so if you have a, a confident male, he'll, typically, you know, persuade a female with spurring or, you know, courting behavior if she's receptive and, and if he's convincing enough, boom. But 
we don't, you know, we don't attribute our lack of production to potentially maybe he wasn't confident and maybe they didn't, they didn't get along and maybe she didn't like him or something like that. Cause we don't perceive, you know, what they perceive at all. Right. And we don't understand what they're expressing <laughs> other than through body language. And that's something that's really difficult to, to discern. I would imagine. Yeah. I don't know how you would. Yeah, I know. I don't know. And, and, what about you, Lucas? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just, you're, you're right. You're making me think about Bolins now too. And probably why they're difficult. <laughs> I think that that makes sense that that would come into play for certain species, if not all. Um, but it, you know, I, I, I don't know. I haven't produced anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> yet. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> but it's you're in the process thought, of doing though. it, you know? Yeah. yeah and that's, that's yeah, definitely something that I'm curious about. Um, you know, I, I am, cohabbing my pair of oh. hypo het stonewashed uh since Dirty. they're about a year old and part of that is just i'm curious uh, uh-huh. to observe what they do because there's a number of universities and zoos that keep rebels pythons together um and the other part of that is i'm really curious how that's going to impact them down the road in terms of breeding in that they're completely used to each other's scent and presence, Mm. um, you know, from being with each other for years at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh Of course, this is all under a very, very watchful eye and I separate them to feed, Mm -hmm. um, kind of taking after what, what Justin does. I think Justin Julander keeps a lot of his pairs together year round and just separates them to feed. There's kind of that section in the complete carpet book about Mm -hmm. the uh, quote, low maintenance breeding technique Mm -hmm. where you just keep Mm -hmm. them together. Um, But I guess the theory there is that they will be used to each other. So they'll be more tuned into those fine uh, chemical cue shifts, right? So the male, if a male sees a female for the first time in years, maybe he gets super jacked up and excited and, and breeds when she's not receptive, but maybe if they're used to each other and their baseline chemical cues, then it sticks out to them more and they don't get overexcited when the female is actually receptive and giving off those cues. Um, so maybe the breedings are, are during more effective times in the cycle. Um, hmm. But I don't know. It's just, just a little mini experiment here. Yeah. I wonder how that plays into like repeating a pairing. Like if you have success with a pairing one year and then doing it again the next year, how that plays a role. I do wonder about that. I I don't think there's any studies in terms of uh, how wild pythons select mates, whether they ever select the same mates, et cetera, et cetera. I know that there's a little note in the Brettles Python section in the book that they observed potentially repeat nesting sites. Um, Uh Right, they found like that tree hollow with clearly multiple years worth of clutches, mm-hmm. uh, like eggshells in there, with mm-hmm. like a female hanging out right next to it. So that'd be really cool to know if if that is the same female female year after year, and if she repeats that nest site, you know, maybe the male knows where to find her. Maybe they do repeat pairings. Who knows? Just that mm-hmm. research hasn't been done, to my knowledge. Yeah, that would be it. Would be have to be extensive. You know, you'd have to have years of yeah. field data and observing the males and. You got to imagine the females find their safe spot and the males go off and do their thing and try and breed multiple females and they come back around. And right. as long as they've got the energy and as long as they're able to be the first to a female or combat and beat, you know, other males, yeah. then it could happen. I, I would imagine that it's probably, 
probably rare that a yeah. male breeds a female multiple times, but who knows? It's it not unheard of on, in nature, right? I mean, yeah, it might depend on population densities. I mean, definitely. there's all sorts of, you know, accounts of uh, monogamous reptiles, you know? Right, so and birds too. Yeah. You know, certain birds breed for life and mm-hmm. find each other year after year mm-hmm. at, at the at the nest site. Um and birds are just weird reptiles with feathers. So <laughs> why not? Uh, I got I got to tell you. I think I don't know if I mentioned this on NPR here. Some of the podcasts to keep track of anymore. <laughs> <laughs> One of the um, places where I talk. <laughs> the monitors are are they remind me so much of birds. Like yeah. so much of birds. Like it's it's really kind of crazy. You know, just watching them in their uh, their their behaviors. It's like wow you're you're like a bird without wings right mm-hmm. <laughs> you know they're amazing feathers, no feathers yeah it's crazy uh-huh. so yeah. i have a thought i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna step out way outside the box right oh, boy. so i'm watching um the new planet earth series um what's it uh the perfect planet right mm-hmm. have you guys seen that yeah I'm not okay you I've have not no is it. that on netflix where's that at where did i watch it i think i watched it on discovery plus um okay that's how I got it. Uh, I don't have cable. It's by the way, oh. no, it's like an app. You can get the app. You can probably oh. stream it. You can probably yeah. stream it. Yeah, I'll it's stream it. <laughs> it's like Netflix, but it's Discovery Plus. So they have cool. a they have a channel that's just called Planet Earth. So all of the Planet Earth series, oh. to me, it's worth the seven bucks a month to good to know to be able yeah. to to, yeah, yeah. to find that. Anyway, I'm watching this um, episode, and basically, it's it's the series is called The Perfect Planet, and uh, they're talking about flamingos and <clears throat> they're talking about how flamingos do this migration and they migrate to this one spot where it's, it, they're talking about volcanoes and I'm, I don't want to go too much into detail cause I'll butcher it. But, uh, basically they go to this one spot where, you know, uh, it's right by a volcano and they sort of, that's where they go to breed every year. So all these flamingos go to this one spot. So I'm thinking with Bull and I, right. I know talking to Ari, um, and talking to Keith, that there has not been a male that's been mm-hmm. found mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, with females. So what if the key to breeding bull and I, I know this sounds weird and it's outside of the box and it's outside of the norm of like lower the temperatures or due to photo period. But what if that male has to somehow migrate and in order for them to stimulate breeding, because it's sort of like these flamingos need this specific spot because of these specific things are in this environment that they can't get from their, say, their normal environment. So they have to migrate to this environment. So you got Bull and I um, up on the mountain, right? Um, the other thing that made me think about this is that as they're going through this series, they have this, which I never knew there was land iguanas in the uh, Galapagos chain. Mm-hmm. I only knew of marine iguanas. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have this land iguana who climbs into the pit of the volcano, right down into it where they're, they climb down this steep side of the mountain, this rocks are falling on them. And all these female iguanas are trying to go down into this pit to lay the eggs because the soil that's in, in this, the bottom of this vol- volcano, um, is perfect for incubating the eggs. So, like, what if it's more along the lines of something like that, where they have to, you know what I mean? Like, we, I think sometimes we're sort of closed-minded in thinking that it's just temperature and 
um, you know, light cycles or however you do it, you know, I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, clearly there's something at play that it, that goes beyond temperature and light cycle for, for species right. like that. Right. So right. thinking outside the box in that way is, is it's probably the only way that we would crack that code. Um, right. And yeah, you know, with certain birds, there's very, uh, measurable changes in hormones that starts their reproductive cycle. Yeah. So I wonder if those hormones can be identified in snakes and measured in the blood. Um, just sure, probably going could. off on a tangent here, right? Like, because if you could measure that and then you could experiment with what, you know, makes those that specific hormone increase right that says time to produce right follicles time to produce produce sperm etc etc that could be really interesting research um or even if you could quite literally introduce that hormone and make it happen i don't know i'm i'm going off on a tangent but (laughs) there are definitely chemical Hmm. cues at play there yeah so tony just asked what if the males are the ones not traveling but the females are traveling to the males and back to the nesting location yeah yeah it could, could, be. It could be either one yeah i mean we yeah. so we know they're not finding males at these sites they're only finding females at this nesting area so it's obviously an ideal spot for nesting if it's an ideal spot for nesting it's also probably pretty far away from any nest rating mammals or species or predation so if there's no predation or minimal predation or pests, then there probably isn't a lot of food around in those nest sites, maybe. So maybe they all live somewhere else or, you know, occupy a different subhabitat, and then that's just where the females go for nesting. We just happen to have only found that so far. Yeah. I think the, the, the you know, again, according to Ari uh, and his trips, basically those female bull and I are um, taking over um, – uh, you know, these, uh, uh, mammal burrows of some sort. Um, I know he said that he thinks that they eat, uh, couscous, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It, it just made me think like, wow, you know, like I, to me, breeding has always been that thing. And this is sort of like what probably got me into it and fascinated by it. And I just, it's sort of like ramped back up when I was doing the rough scale episode and like researching, right. And I send you guys those graphs, right. Yeah. And if you look at where they breed, right. Everything dips down. The temperature dips down. The humidity dips down. The light cycle, light cycle dips down the, uh, you know, um, how long, um, you know, uh, did I say humidity? All those factors all dip down. And basically, if you look at when those eggs are going to hatch, it's on the up curve. So you're getting, you know, uh, you're getting water, uh, rain and precipitation and all this stuff is coming into play again so that the environment becomes back to life and all this, you know. But it's one thing to talk about it. But for me, it kind of clicked when I saw it on those graphs. Um, and it's just like, wow, okay. So that makes total sense that they mm-hmm. would be hatching at this point when everything is, you know, fresh and abundant. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, so. it's advantageous for, for species to time their clutches in a way that the young are going to have an abundant prey source yeah. to get started on and whatnot, you know? Sure. I'm, that's really interesting. The idea of a migration 
and how the males are never found. Like that's got me thinking. I always, I always thought maybe, you know, my guess was that one day they'd find males that they're just like hiding up in the trees because there's so many things that'll try and eat them or something. I don't know. Hmm. I think, you know, I'm trying to remember. I mean, we've talked to Ari so many times. I don't ever remember him saying anything about, like, at least where he's at, right? He's up on the top of these, you know, mountain cliffs, which, again, made me think about, like, are Bull and I going up to this spot because of the temperature? Like, are, are they picking this area to nest because they know that they can, you know, uh, whether they're taking over some kind of burrow from another animal that makes it easier for them and they don't have to, uh, you know, use as much, uh, caloric, uh, you know, uh, they don't need uh, to, uh, use calories in order to, you know, make these nests or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can just sort of take it over and it's sort of the perfect temperature for incubating Python eggs, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so potentially they occupy further down the mountain and go up for nesting. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's one of the difficult things about going to these places like you know uh you you go at a specific time of year but you know some of these trips are you know whether you're going to Australia or Papua New Guinea or whatever um some of these trips can can sometimes be pricey that you want to make sure that you get the most bang for your buck so you're not going to go in the off season and see what it's like so you have this sort of like this snapshot of just you know you know what I mean you're you're seeing it at the prime time if you will and not seeing what happens uh the rest of the time you know mm-hmm. so i don't know if somebody wants to send me to papua new guinea to live there for a year and study bowl and i i, I happily will <laughs> no problem yeah the grocery store will be fine <laughs> yeah, they'll be okay yeah i'll i'll work I'll take care of your womas and uh yeah inlands yeah. and oh, diamonds. owen owen can uh <laughs> can take care of the snakes for you no 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 no, no. <laughs> he's like wait a minute <laughs> that's what he gets for not being here even though it's our fault because he works <laughs> yeah every week he gets more and more enraged <laughs> yeah it's great it's great hmm. so Snake here's lighter. a here's a comment that i thought was interesting um what if you don't find males just because you don't know where to find them but we know how to find females because you know what to look for and nest etc well, that's, um, that's exactly true. You know, it is. Um, uh, but you know, remember Ari's having people take him to these nest sites. So there are locals that are taking them to these areas. So I would think that they would, I mean, they live there. So I would think that they would know where to find them elsewhere. Um, oh. Ari more work <laughs> or males could be arboreal. That's sort of what you were saying, right? Riley? Yeah, I've always been curious if maybe the males, like, you know, females can be territorial so they can get testy with males and maybe, you know, bulldog them a bit when they're, you know, not in season or something or even potentially eat them for, because resources might be scarce or because there's pop wind pythons cruising around. Who knows? Um, but, yeah, and maybe, you know, there's better feeding opportunities for males up in the trees. That's maybe safer. I don't know. And that's a hard area to survey. So, right, yeah. Um, and then this this was made. You know, I think we've debunked this one that um, maybe it has something to do with specific altitude and pressure and whatnot. Yeah, because they've been bred outside of their their native yeah. range plenty of times. 
enough to see some variation accompany success. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then, uh, you know, um, I, I, I have not run into, um, issues with, uh, carpets being selective, but I'm thinking that perhaps it could be because of the way I choose my males. Mm. Most people don't want an aggressive snake as a, as a, as a male, but being, being a breeder, I think it's advantageous to have sure. that aggressive male, if you will, mm-hmm. because he's going to get the job done. Mm-hmm. So usually my, uh, males are feisty. Um, yeah. and I, I, I purposely did it that way. So maybe that's why I don't necessarily see that in my collection personally, but mm. do you attribute that to, um, just picking the the best out of the clutch or just letting your snakes be snakes and not necessarily aiming to socialize them or tame them down, so to speak. I don't tame my snakes down though. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think it's interesting how herpticulture is sort of has these two shifts at the moment. It's like you have people that are breeders and then you have people that are keepers. And I, I think that, um, you know, the breeding side of it, you have to do it, a, uh, approach it a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't be worried about, uh, you know, it, you know, because I don't know, my experience has been, it's like always the prettiest snake is usually the most difficult to get going. It's mm-hmm. usually the, yeah. you know, <laughs> it seems to be um, the biggest pain yeah. in the ass out of the clutch or something. Why do no, so things? yeah, I just want to go back to uh Crow Fabulous with his uh real quick. They, they were talking about success with Bull and I, yeah, um, the altitude comment, yeah. Um, so Spataro wasn't in Colorado when he bred Bull and I, he was in Maryland, and Maryland um, is what, yeah, practically sea level, just inland, yeah. And Balin, who originally bred them with uh. You did that in what, 2012? No, I think it was earlier than that. Oh, uh, um, was it? Okay. Yeah, it was. I, I want to say it was the early 2000s, but he bred them also in um, Maryland. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Um, yeah. So that sort of debunked that whole idea. And you know, Frederick, he's bred them, what, three times, I think. Mm-hmm. But the problem is always the fertility of the clutch the consistency of being able to do it. He had it sort of dialed in whatever he was doing where he was and then he moved and then he couldn't reproduce it again. So interesting. I don't know. I don't know if it's one of those things where they just need to settle in and you got to be in for the long haul and eventually they'll come around. You know, there's Mm -hmm. sort of that mindset as well. Um, But I don't, I don't know. It's it's interesting though. that It's hard to unlock. Yeah, <clears throat> but scrubs are just as difficult, you know. Yeah, sure. And that's what a bull and I basically is, right? It's just right. It's the Bradley of the scrub python complex. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's a sister species. <laughs> yep, black a black scrub. <laughs> Do you yeah. think? And this is totally just a shot in the dark. You know, I'm I'm certainly no wealth of knowledge with bullens, but do you think that people keep them too big? And that hurts they, people's chances. 
I think they definitely, I don't know anymore. I, I think in the past, like when I was sort of coming into Morelia and they're in, in the early two thousands, I think, yes, absolutely. They kept them way too fat and too big. Yes. hundred percent. Right. Cause I'm just thinking about with the scrubs, right? You, you see some scrubs that are freaking massive and Riley and I talked about this last week and how there's different, uh, localities. They might be different subspecies and whatnot, but, um, in, in talking with Nick, I know that his success with the Waminas, you know, he keeps them really small. Um, and it seems to be <sighs> yeah. a theme uh, with a lot of snakes in general, right? That when this, when they're kept a little bit the smaller, a little bit yeah. more trim, especially the males, maybe they breed mm-hmm. better. And, you know, I just don't know. It, it seems to me that Bolins are often kept pretty freaking robust, <laughs> pretty <Yeah. laughs> big. So just, just a thought. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, Scott Iper posted in the the NPR chat this morning a video link of a guy out in Australia doing a house call for a clutch of carpets that was laid in a woman's tree in her backyard up in like this group of like look like staghorn fern and leaves and all in there. And as he's pulling her off the eggs, he comments about how small she is and how little and young she is. And he pulls her off the eggs. And she, I mean, he's holding the clutch of eggs and then he's got her and she doesn't even look big enough to push an egg out. You know, she's like this big after laying all those eggs and she's like super thin. Like yeah. she's way smaller than, you know, some of my my like three and, and three and a half, four year old coastals. And I'm just like, what? that's amazing. That's a, that's a tiny Python that laid, you know, a good clutch of eggs. It was a full cluster. She's sitting there wrapped around them. So yeah. And we always talk about how much we overfeed our animals in, in herpetoculture, just, you know, because of, of human nature, we eat all the time. You know, we just kind of project that on our animals. Like, eat, you're hungry. You're moving. Yeah. You must be hungry. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just a thought. I'm sure somebody has tried to mm-hmm. not have, giant <laughs> giant right. pairs but well and and that's something well, actually go go for it. it no 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 go um i that's something i i think about all the time and how i like i have a really big jungle cuz i fed her a bunch when i was first getting into carpets and how i don't do that anymore so i've got younger animals that are at a much slower steadier pace than she was on mm-hmm. and and i i think um that might also be a problem for other species like Apodora. So, you know, my, my regiment for my male is to feed him very lean, sparingly kind of variety. Um, and, you know, I would like to think that, you know, maybe that will help my chances in the long run trying to breed them by keeping them on a smaller, leaner regimented sort of like sparing diet. Right. And in terms of, of the Bolins, you know, with it in mind that, they don't find males too. Like we can compare the size of the females that Ari finds in the wild and try to emulate that. But who mm-hmm. knows what size the males are if we don't see them, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. they might be lean little things and that's mm-hmm. <laughs> who knows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was, you know, here comes uh, the, the whole, maybe I used the wrong word that it's been debunked, but meaning that it's not um, crucial. Yeah. So I, I've said this for a long time. I think that there's, there's so many parameters of breeding, right? There's, there's, and you have like, even if you have 10, 10 keys that you can unlock, if you hit five of them, regardless of what they are, you might be successful in breeding them. 
Um, so I think that for Morelia in particular from that area, um, I think that probably more than anything is the, the pressure of storms, which I think that's why you can sort of, you know, dial in on that. Um, and we sort of like we do with everything. We try to fit everything into these like perfect little programs. Like it's a, it's a recipe that you can follow for, for this, but like, I would wonder, and I'm curious if Owen will take advantage of this with now that he has a, um, uh, what do you call it? Oh, Um, the ultrasound, uh, the ultrasound, um, that, Maybe the fact that you don't have success with these other species of python, these harder species, bolognese, scrubs, white lips, is that maybe they're not building, building follicles when we think they are, you know, because they're in a different hemisphere now. And perhaps, you know, somehow they're really just relying on those pressure fronts, the you know, drop in pressure in order to uh, stimulate um you know, uh, growing of follicles and, and get them going. Um, I don't magnetic know. Magnetic fields. We're back to magnetic <laughs> fields. <laughs> Different um, hemisphere. The moon. Yeah. 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 No, there's all sorts of cues that are at play. So I think you're dead on with that. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's essential, but yeah, it, yeah, there's probably multiple things that would get a female going. Why do aggressive males get the job done? I, I, I don't necessarily know how to answer that question. And as far as just like the ones that I've seen that have life and spunk and just make better breeders. That I, aggressive I disposition might be a sign or a symptom of having like higher levels of, of testosterone or whatever the hormone is in snakes um, that would, you know, directly impact that, that breeding drive. Um, mm-hmm. And for species that do male combat, uh, you know, the more aggressive male wins and gets the female. Yeah. Yeah. True story. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Somebody somebody was talking about, uh, oh yeah, Ryan, he's in love with uh, Halma Harris Scrubs. Yeah. You know, for a long time, I thought Halma Harris Scrubs were chill. But I think that they're chill until you get them dialed in. And once you get them dialed in, they're just like any other scrub. Um, yeah. Little rockets with teeth. Have you ever seen them or worked with them at all? Not personally. No. no. Um, yeah. They're, t- they're a tough one. You know, very shy. Um, yeah, they're one of those ones that you kind of dial in and you have them going and they're pretty consistent. And then all of a sudden they just die. Whoa. Yeah. Hmm. Damn. They just don't, you know, it seems the younger you get them, the, 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 uh, you know, the funny thing about, uh, Halma Harris scrubs is when the first one was produced in captivity, um, we were actually in Queensland and (laughs) Rob was so excited because they weren't born red. And oh right. I remember that. <laughs> he was so fired up, man. Yeah, he called He's like, that. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah, he had a very a very exact hypothesis as to why he expected them not to be red, right? Based on the the trajectory of the evolution of a lot of those species, right? 
Well, he had gotten in um, a couple, and they were very like you could tell that. I don't even think they had their first shed, and mm-hmm. um, he took a lot of shit from scrub guys because he was saying that how the hairs are not born red, and like you know they just went crazy as reptile keepers do. You know how dare you say that you don't know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden is, you know, he's, he stood firm with that, the belief that they weren't born red and, uh, yeah. And he out. had an experience with those babies. Is that basically, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, good for him. So. He was right. <laughs> I will not be breeding retics in 2021. No, I will not. No. How old are your retics? I don't even know. Two? Uh, they're pretty good size. Three? I know, uh, Garrett, had texted me. I just been so busy that I didn't get a chance to get back to him, but uh, he was going to send me a mail and then uh, try to breed them. And then I can send them back to him and say, I bred retics and call it a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Take him back. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get Check, these out. Yeah. Um, but but uh, yours haven't broken any glass, so they're still okay. No, no, definitely not. Yeah. They're not oh, free man. range. Oh my goodness! Jungle carpet. No, no, no. <laughs> I think the problem. I, I don't know. Nick told me at some point in my life I would change and become what I'm becoming, where I'm more of a purist than I am a, a crosser. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I think with limited gene pool animals, we should probably do the hobby a favor and sort of work on just keeping those in in the hobby because yeah. once you start to cross them out you sort of have what we started with the jungle carpet you know it's like you have this beautiful example of a jungle carpet maybe it doesn't matter to the average keeper or whatever but and the idea i know you're not going to release them back into the wild or whatever but the whole you know i i don't know what are you guys thoughts on the whole you know the the invisible arc i know that there's some in, you know talk about this uh, about how you know it's it's kind of bullshit or whatever and like i don't know my thought is is that we're sort of like who are we to take away somebody's experience later down the line to not be able to experience these animals in mm-hmm. captivity like mm-hmm. is that our call to make like you right know, are we that egotistical that 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 our generation of herpers right now is 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 able to say you know no you 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 know you you don't know what it's like to have a jungle carpet and you never will. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like we owe it to the next generation to to make sure that stuff is available for them. Right. I think that it's it's very true that they're not going back in the wild. Um there's too much artificial selection even just after a few generations in in captive, you know, settings that that's just not going to work. But mm. that being said, I still think that there is value in keeping these things in the captive setting Mm -hmm. so that if the worst is to happen in the wild, no, we're not going to put them back out there. No, they're not going to repopulate, but they're not gone. You know, in a sense, it's kind of a dead man walking kind of thing, but I'd still rather have them on the planet in captivity than nowhere. Right. So like, yeah. With the California condor thing, I don't know. I'm sure Riley, you've probably 
through the zoo like oh yeah done a lot with you know they are mm-hmm. in 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 a sense a dead man walking you know every time you let them go they go eat a meal and die of lead poisoning for the most part it's a, right? yeah they can but, it's a serious problem but they're still around their numbers because, have grown right yeah because right. they pulled the last 20 birds that were in existence into a captive setting got some breeding going figured them out pass legislation to change some of the ways hunters use different, uh, you know, lead free ammunition and stuff to help because they eat a lot of, you know, trash and microplastics and things like that. And that's what causes a lot of the problems. And yeah. And then they got some protective status. Yeah. So they've bounced back. There's hundreds of them out there. They're not out of the woods, of course, but yeah, there's, and even if they never reestablish in the wild, they're not Mm -hmm. extinct. Right. right. And you can and it, go to a, a, a zoo at some point and see one, you know, they have them at the Oakland zoo on, on exhibit. Right. Um, and they play a huge and crucial role in cleanup. They can literally digest anthrax and all sorts of diseases. And so vultures like that are very important globally without vultures. You have carcasses and bacteria and stuff going rampant, right. especially mm-hmm. in countries like Africa, where a lot of these vultures are, uh, are, you know, dwindling in numbers. It's a big problem. So if you think about it from a species role perspective, those snakes play an an important role in their, their niche, their habitat, their environment, no matter how small. So, you know, say something does go wrong and like a virus wipes out all the wild populations, at least for the sake of keeping that environment somewhat in balance, having these animals in their pure, you know, form is important to at least have like a, an assurance colony, essentially. That's exactly, you know, I think there's unbelievable merit in that, you know, hopefully, and it seems pretty unlikely that that will ever be the situation, but we don't know. Right. And I guess, I guess that's my point is that even though they probably will never, you know, our captive specimen would probably die if released into the wild, but that doesn't mean that there isn't value in having a, you know, pure jungle or pure whatever, uh, just to have. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, you know, rough scales are one of these things. Um, the more and more you look at them in their limited distribution and that we know, right. That we know of, I mean, that, that area is so remote and so hard to, uh, to get to. And, you know, um, I think that, you know, we're looking at a species that is probably on its way out and the idea of like not having them in captivity, um, you know, is it just seems like, oh, we're just going to let it die. And what, what always baffles me with this topic is because, because to a certain extent, I understand like we can't just release animals and, you know, uh, Riley, you know, this more, probably more than, than than me but like the whole idea of how you set up stud books for zoos and stuff like that to make Mm -hmm. sure that you know if you are doing something that's getting released back into the wild there it's not like you can just breed two animals and say oh i could put jungle carpets back in the wild right yeah there's a lot of there's (laughs) There's a lot lot more to it right yeah there's a lot more that that goes into that to manage the genetic vitality of a population of animals right for sure but you know, if you take something like a Tasmanian tiger, right? Wouldn't you like to see that today? Wouldn't that be cool to see? Hell yeah. Even if it was just in captivity? Yeah. But, you know, so, right. and I think most people would, but then, um, I don't know. There's another argument of, 
we're not going to release them back into the wild and probably not. But does that mean that we shouldn't still be exactly. able to see them in a captive setting? You know, a hundred percent. Yeah. It's, and it, it is like what Ryan said, they are, you know, functionally extinct at that point anyway, but it, it prolongs the inevitable disappearance and maybe a few more generations can see certain things, you know, and mm-hmm. you yeah. can, uh, you can document those while they're still here. Right. Right. And who knows, maybe in 2031, we'll have like uh, Jurassic Park style where we can just. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to Nick about the whole like bringing mammoths back thing with like <laughs> using yeah. like an elephant to teach it how to be an elephant. So uh-huh. then it's, it still wouldn't be a mammoth because you need a mammoth to teach the mammoth how to be a mammoth. Right. It would be a mammoth acting like an elephant. Yeah. So <laughs> it's yeah, kind interesting. of interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ryan brings up a good point as far as like, uh, you know, he just said, well, I guess let me show it up there, but um, it's just a lot of people beat the drum, but they forget that part. Uh, if you see all the orangutans, that's awesome. Right. But the forest has been turned into palm oil. And then what? So like, yeah. I mean, that I think to me, I think, isn't that the biggest problem with nature at the, this point anyway? It's just the yeah, lack of deep- habitat. Yeah, 100%. deforestation is going at an accelerated rate. The, the global climate uh, like the warming of the earth, uh, the polar ice caps are melting. I saw a photo of, um, the stake in the top of the North pole is underwater. Um, you know, like things are changing big time. Yeah. Buy your real estate on Antarctica now. Yeah. (laughs) When everything else is, is arid and Antarctica is a nice, you know, temperate, forested landmass that's where we'll want to yeah <laughs> to yeah. make our human, last stand <laughs> human alterations to the environment are kind of globally the biggest you know hindrance to the survival of these animals and and you know we use so much natural resources and just take and take and take we're depleting forest which is you know, having ripple effects that affects oxygen levels and carbon dioxide and the ozone layer. It's all and then, positive feedback loops. You can't put it yeah, back in the box. Everything you, you right. take something the the void gets filled with imbalance and, and it all, it all plays a role. It's very integral and we've completely screwed off that balance. So yeah. And palm oil is one of the biggest problems. It's in, it's in everything, but it doesn't need to be. It's just the cheapest oil that's used for a lot of foods. Yeah. So, um, 100%. There's actually an app, a Cheyenne Mountain Zoo app that's a barcode scanner. It's a free app and you can scan, you know, uh, any food products and it'll tell you if there's palm oil in it or if the company is making changes or if they already work uh, inside the uh, round table for sustainable palm oil plantations. Because there are, there are ways where they're trying to do it in sustainable ways where it doesn't, you know, require tearing down forests. So you, you can make responsible informed decisions and vote with your dollar essentially using stuff like that so right. but yeah if there's no habitat where are you going to put all these animals so there is exactly that's very very true yeah 100 the other uh the other comment depressing. you wanted to it's always depressing yeah, super depressing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. so go ahead <laughs> the other thing that you had mentioned you wanted to talk about eric was uh offering baby reptiles prey that's not what they eat in the wild this drives me nuts, man. <laughs> Let her in. Well, like, I don't know. I, I, it's like this idea. And I don't know. Maybe I'm just I, I look at the glasses half full type of thing. But this whole idea that like 
we're keeping these um, exotic eaters, if you will, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, I think of for me, it would probably be Antaresia. We even take car- like diamond pythons is a perfect example, right? Mm-hmm. Diamond pythons are one of those species that they, I would say probably most carpet pythons as babies are eating either skinks or frogs, right? They're eating right. these small skinks that are running through the leaf litter. They're all over the place. Everywhere you look, they're everywhere. They're right at that perfect spot for where carpets are sort of like at these like think of like I think I've talked about this before, but like, you know, you have these tall trees where the adult carpets are hanging out, you know, and then you have like these bushes that go along the edge. Right. And they're mm-hmm. sort of hanging mm-hmm. in these bushes. And I think that's what, ha- you know, that's the deal with with green trees and like they're in the same spot. They're in that same niche, if you will. You know, they're just hanging out and, and like they're just waiting for a skink yeah. or a frog or I mean, shit. There was a paper that, you know, green trees were eating bugs. You know, they were eating moths. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so like, I mean, they're just opportunistic. And I think the idea that we sort of like, you know, say that we only wanted to eat this this one prey item is just, I don't know. I think it's just closed minded on our part. And then we get frustrated when they won't take what we want them to take. And, you know, like I, I get the whole, you know, parasite thing. And I, I, I get all that. And I understand that. But like, I don't know. I think it's, I think I'm going to do it, man. I think I'm going to have like this gecko colony or skink colony where I can produce these things. And, and even if it's just for me personally, but like, I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't to get them going. Like why you wouldn't offer the, this idea that we're just going to let them die because they won't eat a mouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this, no, that's this European mouse is just <laughs> yeah. goofy, man. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? What do you guys think? I completely agree. And I also have thought about trying to pinpoint a good, uh, easy to breed type of reptile that I could have strictly for getting womas and blackheads started in the future. You know, like, look. Didn't you share a photo the other day in the chat of a, a woma eating, eating a, a sand goanna or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Both. Oh, Both yeah. And then beard. one eating a bearded dragon out of a tree. Yeah, yeah. 100%. I, I mean, Dude, get beardies. Beardies can produce like 30 eggs a clutch. If you get a big female, they'll breed every year. And there you go. That's a bunch of reptile feeders. Exactly. Or or even if you don't want to do it yourself, you can talk to the pet shops in your area if you're lucky enough to have pet Mm, shops. I don't know, dude. It's expensive to get bearded dragons right now, dude. Oh, I I was going to say... I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say to call you if they have stillborns or if they have animals die, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But... Yeah, man. I mean, Riley and I talked about this last week a little bit too, in terms of snake snake eaters. But mm-hmm. if you're going to have an animal, I think you need to be okay with it eating what it's supposed to eat. Yeah, you would. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't feed a lion romaine lettuce <laughs> and, and get mad when it doesn't want it. You know. Oh man. <laughs> Hashtag vegan cat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Damn vegans are at it again. Hashtag vegan cat. Oh, wait. Yeah. You can't say that word around Riley. (laughs) Uh, 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 No, that's true. I, so, I mean, I've talked about it before. I'm, I'm a fan of, of feeding off reptile prey. You know, this, this weird line, this social taboo line that the hobby draws at, like, it's okay to breed rodents for food, but it's like, you're a monster if you breed reptiles for food. Right. Um, 
it's just nonsense to me. So, you know, I've got a, a gravid ball python right now strictly just to have feeder snakes, even though I know, you know, I could get money for them because, you know, the hobby is ridiculous right now. They want everything, but I'd rather have those animals available for my Kribos to feed. I feed my Kribos anytime I have snakes to offer, they get them. The Apodora, he's already like when he was a couple months with me, he got a snake prey and he ate it like he'd been doing it the whole time. So to me, it's like for certain species, absolutely. I, you know, I've got chicks thawing in the back, um, you know, for the hognose. I'm going to give them some chicks and give the Kribo some chicks. I like, you know, varied prey. Um, I even have a friend who he saved, uh, you know, dead in the egg baby ball pythons are ones that passed away and he's frozen them for me. And he's even got a, a baby Australian water dragon that passed away. Um, and he's going to give me that and I'm going to feed that off to... I don't know. I might even try a carpet or somebody to see, you know, just for the heck of it, because if they're going to eat it, they have some instinct. that's like, that works. And I just think it's healthier for them for sure. I actually, the blackhead I had in the past, I, I fed it a bearded dragon. Nice. How was that? Was it just, so <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It was, you know, it, it's not the easiest thing to do because yeah. you know, let's face it. We love reptiles and yep. like you're feeding a reptile, another reptile. Yep. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's not like you can, do it. let's put it this way. For me, it wasn't the same as if I was feeding a mouse or a rat, you know? Yeah, like, Cause we I, see I, rodents like, as vermin. Ah, we see them as annoying, you know? Right. It's like, ah, who cares? It's just yeah. so funny. You know, yeah. I had pet rats as a kid. I like rats. I feel like I'd be more okay feeding, feeding a beardy. I'm not a big beardy guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, I get it what you're comfortable with or whatever, but this idea that like, I you know why can't I get these things to eat or these are so difficult, you know, or to get going. And it's like, I don't understand like, some of these species. We spend so much time trying to figure out the, this end of the breeding, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, how do you breed it? How do you keep it? How do you put it together? How do you, you know, how do you introduce it? How do you, how do you get the eggs? What, you know, how do you keep that female comfortable so that she doesn't reabsorb the follicles and all these things that we walk through and finally you get the eggs and then trying to figure out like what temperature, you know, think of blackheads and walmas in particular, where the eggs can be a little more sensitive than say other species of pythons. Right. Um, you know, and then to figure all that out and to get it to where they hatch out. And it's just like, oh, well, here's where I'm going to stop. I'm going to draw the line here. <laughs> I, I've done all this work to get to this point and I'm just going to let them die. It just seems just as dumb. To yeah. me. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that probably another piece of it is just how easily how easy it is to produce a lot of rodents versus how easy oh, it would be to produce the equivalent quantity of a, of a reptile. Right. Um, but you know, links makes iguana links. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Yeah. That's worth trying. Those are good. Repulinx is a great product. If you got some unique animals, you want to give that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that the small ones, um, I, I don't, you got to thaw know. them. You got to thaw them carefully because the, yeah. the, the, the casing yeah the little ones so thin it can rupture i've got a friend he's in the chat he's actually tried the little ones with some of his uh correct me if i'm wrong um justin but i think he tried them with uh some of his madagascar cat-eyed snakes um anyway yeah he's tried them with a few things and and yeah if they take them like why not because it's 
it's a whole different set of oils, proteins, fats, you know, all the irons and minerals from the organs and things like that are very different, yeah. you know, from, you know, prey item to prey item. And some species like my Kribos, they show it more. If I'm feeding them only rats, they get really fat and dull. But if I switch it up and add things like fish or organ meat and other things like that, their scales are like glossy and smooth and they look different. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's something that's often not thought about as a reason of why you would have um, poor fecundity with um, pythons, you know, meaning, you know, slugs or whatever the case would be. And like we always attribute it to temperature. But what mm-hmm. if it's diet? You mm-hmm. know, um, mm-hmm. you know. I guess, you know, I, maybe it's the fact of working with monitors and researching them, you know, so much currently that it makes me sort of think outside that box. I think, I think sometimes I felt I, I know I've been guilty of this. It's like you get in your box, you're comfortable in that box, you know, and you you sort of like it. Everything sort of works. So why right. step outside of that box? You know, and exactly um, yeah. when you have problems, you just sort of like. Oh, that's just carpets being carpets. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Just assuming we know the answer. And it can work, but still not be optimal. Right. right. Correct. Exactly. Correct. So yeah. that's it's it's striving for a different goal than just yeah. having things work. Right. You know, can diet play? You know, should we be offering I don't know. I mean, if you know where your rodents are coming from and you know that they're being fed a high you know, uh, high, highly nutritious diet, then, you know, life is good. But mm-hmm. if you don't, you're sort of taking a chance. I think of like companies like, I don't know, rodent pro and stuff like that, not to call them out, but like, basically they're taking lab rats. So yeah, lab rodents Dude, and stuff, you know, I used to get rodents from them years ago and I stopped yeah. as soon as cold blooded cafe came out, obviously to support friends, but because the, yeah. The rodents are great. And uh, I had heard horror stories from people and even seen photographs from like people's uh, like mice and things. Every once in a while to get a funky batch from rodent pro. And I saw like mice that were thawed and all of a sudden, like they flipped them over and their bellies were all green and they cut them up. And it turns out like they had been chewing on some green tub at whatever lab they got those rodents from. And dude, and it was gross. I've seen, uh, I've seen snakes turn their noses up at poor quality rodents when, yeah. you know, offered a disgusting one mm-hmm. and it, it, you know, there's something to it for sure. Oh, Absolutely. It, it for sure. What your food eats matters in terms oh, of what, <laughs> when it, you know, the, uh, the nutrient yeah. um, composition of that prey item is directly correlated to what it has been eating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you got to think a few degrees out from, from, yeah. Yeah. that mm-hmm. yeah so i i don't know i mean you know for me going in with you know especially with diamonds this year um you know uh i i'll never forget and you know this is this is the this is the benefits of going to a reptile show this is the benefits of hanging out after that reptile show this is the benefits of carpet fest and things like that you know mm-hmm. i i was mm-hmm. sitting at the bar at bananas at um um uh, Tinley Park, 
And Adam Gee was talking with Rob Stone about, um, you know, um, he started talking about diamond pythons and that he, he, he said this a hundred percent, like, you know, I've struggled with getting them to go. I couldn't get them to go. Uh, and he came on NPR and talked about it too, but like he, he, he just, he had such a hard time and it wasn't, he, it dawned on him and he's just basically like, oh, well, you know, um, I, uh, I, they eat skinks in the wild. So yeah, they're not going to take a mouse, you know, they're going to eat skinks and he started offering them skinks and uh, miraculously they immediately started feeding. Hmm. So imagine that. (laughs) (laughs) Like there was no, they weren't reluctant to feed or anything like that. It's just like you, they were just looking for what they are supposed to look for. Yeah. Correct. Right. I I wonder if it has to be a specific type of skink or if it's just like reptile skink generic skink good like because then you could just source like cheap you know emerald green skinks well cheap right yeah my dad would probably be upset with me if I <laughs> yeah those are cool skinks by the way yeah, i like them he they're loves really those cool. things they're fun oh. man we've got a few in the shop at time to time and they just they got tons of personality they but yeah really cool like feel to them too they're so like shiny mm-hmm. and smooth mm-hmm. so he has a pair and they're kind of cohab together at the at this point in this beautiful you know, naturalistic cage and the male will come out and sit on his shoulder, but the female is not as, uh, I guess she's more, um, yeah, I don't know, shy or, or you know, uh, yeah. She's yeah. protecting her spot. They're probably breeding. They'll breed. Oh yeah. 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 Which would be crazy. Get some, get some babies from them. And then I don't know what happened to them, dad. Yeah. <laughs> Darwin treats. I, I'll tell you what, man, he set up this naturalistic, uh, dart frog enclosure. Cause oh, that's yeah. his next thing that he's going to get. And mm-hmm. like, he, what a, what a job he did on this thing. And I'm like, dad, where do you, where do you figure out how to do this? And he's just like, uh, you know, I just, I look where they're from and I, I kind of look at what the environment looks like. And then I just replicate it as best I can. And I'm like, oh, look at you using common sense. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How no, dare you? <laughs> there's truth to that. There's absolute truth to that. It's brilliant. You just got to some, you sometimes your eyes are open, but you're not looking, you know what I mean? Yeah. You got to look. And there's certain species that I think, we talk about the the hardiness of carpets and how they're so resilient to keeper variation and styles of keeping, but some species are not. Some species mm-hmm, yeah. have these lines in the sand that you cannot cross. Right. And then as far as it applies to our captive husbandry, there are things that make your life a living hell and way difficult and high maintenance. And then there are things you can do that not only make your life and management of that species easier, but it's, it's actually better for the, the animal, the species. And dart frogs is one of those species where if you screw it up, they're dead. They just drop dead, like too hot, dead, too dry, dead, you know, no shelter, stress, dead, you know, like too many males uh, with certain species, you'll get bullies and runts and you'll get all these problems. And, you know, then you start rectifying those issues. Like, okay, I need a smaller group. It needs to be more humid. There needs to be more cover. It needs to be cooler. And you do these things. And next thing you know, you found that, well, having misting system on there, having plants and shelter and cover and isopods and cleanup crew and low ventilation accomplish all that. And what you've done is just made like a little ecosystem uh, that's tailored to that species. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, they're doing great. Oh, you know, and so carpet pythons, it's like you put them in whatever size enclosure you want with whatever you want to throw in there. As long as there's water and warmth there, they're just like, well, we're good for the most part, you know? So, yeah. 
hundred percent. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. Was I, was again, I don't remember where I was talking about this with, but sort of along to your point, it's just like, um, you know, it's, it's hard to judge whether carpets are, are, you know, when we put these parameters of, you know, do they perch? Do they not perch? Do they hide? Do they not hide? You know, like, what are they looking for specifically? I guess Lori's probably the best one that's doing the most work when it comes to uh, this topic, but uh, like giving them so many choices to figure out what they want. But, um, you know, looking at, you know, when we research Australia trips and stuff and, and look where we're going to go or what we hope to see or whatever, you know, Google Earth is uh, your best friend. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of look at these environments. And I swear, man, every time you see carpets or Morelia, right, what do they buy? Trees and, and water. water. Yep. You know, so to me, that seems to be even 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 Centralian uh yeah, uh, pythons. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're in the middle of this. You know, basically a desert type of deal, and um, you know, they're still in those those. You know, either like right by the rocky outcrops by the trees or in the trees. You know, to sort yeah. of get that humidity that they need or get away yeah. from that. Uh, you know, hundred and ten degree day. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so they can sort of yeah. shelter down. And they know. do stick to the seasonal water courses too. There was that video yeah. we've seen of the Brettles python in the water uh, that yeah. was on Facebook like a year ago or something. Yeah, yeah. So. I remember your footage from um, your first trip to Australia when you were in jungle territory. And I think you you were very keen on just taking little snapshots and clips of the surrounding environment. And one of the clips that you shared uh, you know, how, a couple of years ago during that time was you did like this pan shot of the, the habitat. And it was like this gorge with the river down at the bottom. There was all these trees and it was very lush and green. And you were commenting about how humid it was. And I remember you saying, you're like, it's gotta be like 70% humidity up, you know, where we're at. And, and yeah. it just, I, I've never forgotten that for whatever reason that burned it, that image and, and that quick little comment burned itself into my memory and uh and then you you know you watch your animals behavior and i don't know about you guys but like it's pretty obvious that papuans and jungles appreciate a little more humidity and when you look at where they're from it makes sense yeah right and i think the observation too that even the brettles pythons get in their humid hides if you provide them it's like oh "Oh, i thought you were a desert snake So I think that they're just so adaptable, right? But with jungle carpets, the humidity is actually in the environment, right? Mm-hmm. You don't they don't have to seek these micro habitats in order to get that. And that gorge that you're mm-hmm. talking about, guess where that was? Tully. Where? Tully. That was Tully Gorge. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. nice. So like, you know, I mean, that's like the jungle spot for yeah. Americans, you know. It's like you talk about the Tully jungles and it's like, oh, you know. And yeah, that's what it was. It's just basically like this gorge, and and in that yeah. gorge, there's just these, uh, you know, um, rivers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and tributaries and stuff, and you know, right alongside them, there's these rocky outcrops with these trees just there, and um, yeah, that's where they're hanging out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my boss Grant has this uh, sort of self taught approach of like. Ob- observing his animals and and he's kind of it's almost like a very simplistic approach that he applies to all reptiles but i haven't seen it really backfire have any issues it's like all reptiles really do 
crave or need some level of moisture, high moisture at certain times, even the desert species. And even if it's only internally through food consumption or, you know, getting a little bit of hydration and water, but, you know, even these desert species, they seek out shelter from the high heat and groundwater is underground. So a lot of species like to burrow in, in these desert areas. So just because it's hot, you know, you just said you, there's that photo of the, the breadley in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, yeah. And the the example that stands out most to me that like has left the most impression with me is, you know, when I saw beaded lizards at the Sacramento Zoo, when I was working with them, these guys would climb up, you know, eight, nine foot rock walls overhead, then dig underground. And I'd catch them soaking and swimming in a, in a shallow pool. And this is a species that we're just like, oh, it just lives in the desert, rocky deserts of Mexico. And you know, nobody thinks to give them like, you know, pools to swim in and things to climb. And they just think it's this dumb lizard. But when you give them the options, they utilize all of it to their advantage. And so, sure. you know, in those areas where the extremes are kind of the norm and water is rare, when they find it, of course, they're going to utilize it. And, you know, I just think we, we don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. So, you know, pools under rocks, groundwater, uh, runoff that collects in, in underground sort of pools is probably where a lot of these animals find these little oases in those harsh climates that we think, you know, just dry, hot, brutal. That's what they need. And it's, you know, they definitely right. need moisture. They definitely need water. Everything needs water to survive. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Microclimates for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, you want to switch gears to talk about North American reptiles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was, uh, I was talking with Nipper the other day and I just happened to be driving past the Pine Barrens and I thought, oh, this would be pretty funny. I'll send Nipper a picture of the Pine Barrens covered in snow. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I take this picture, I send it to him and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, holy shit, there's all these snakes that are just like tucked underground. Like mm-hmm. somehow they've evolved to survive through these, you know, single digit weather and foot of snow and all this stuff that, you know, somehow they've managed to figure it out and they go down into these, you know, it would fascinate me to see them. Um, you know, I would imagine, um, that they're seeking out, you know, it's dry, somewhat stable environment so that they can, you know, just sort of like hang out until the the storm has passed, if you will, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, emerge in the springtime it's even looking at my yard knowing that there's garter snakes and water snakes and black rat snakes and all these snakes that are just chilling out there um and you look at it you're like oh my god like (laughs) you know (laughs) like holy shit you know yeah they all they like to go underground and you know those those really hot desert areas like um zion canyon and bryce canyon stuff in utah and arizona they get crazy flash floods throughout the year and these crazy immense rainstorms carve out the landscape but where does all that water go it also carves out underground channels so there's definitely you know pockets in all these different biomes that these animals utilize and i have to think that like the crazy rain and monsoons that alice springs would get also carves out areas underground where groundwater pools and these animals retreat to during the extremes right yeah yeah it's 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 i don't know nature fascinates me of how it like you know the cycles and and how you know things have evolved to you know take advantage uh, Mm -hmm. or you know somehow you know 
be able to survive through harsh times in order to, uh, you know, be able to uh, take advantage of when, when it's not as harsh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, just it's cool. And you know, that, that you were talking about colubrids at the beginning, but uh, when I was recording the podcast with Nipper or the field herpin podcast, I, it never don't, you know, I do appreciate, you know, not being able to go to Australia and, and herp in Australia is, um, you know, obviously that's, that's a huge passion of mine, but when you're, you know, you sort of have to herp locally, um, in the U S it seems like that's going to be where we herp this year in 2021. So if anybody's going to herp, it's not like you're going to be able to travel internationally. I, I don't see it, you know, but who knows? You yeah. never know. Um, but, um, you know, we have some amazing species of reptiles in North America, man. Like oh, really yeah. some, some really killer species that like I myself has sort of like, I don't know, overlooked if you will, or I, you know, I don't know. Mountain King snakes to me are sort of at oh, the, nice. uh, <laughs> at the front of my mind at the moment, you know? Yeah. Um, those are cool. I've yeah. had, so, I've had a pair of wild caught mountain Kings years ago and, they were difficult, man. Yeah, they wanted nothing. So. To, they wanted nothing to do with rodents. Nothing. <laughs> wow. they, they, they would not eat rodents. Full circle. Yep. Full circle. A hundred percent. They would not eat them. They would not eat them. I guarantee you, they would have happily taken fence lizards, yeah. alligator lizards, things like that. Other snakes, you know, king snakes, like king yellow snake. legged frogs. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely going to try to get out there a lot, though, with, with that in mind. I've, this year, i got to find my rubber boa because I still haven't. And then I have some spots for San Francisco garter snake that I'm going to hit need up. To, you need to go hit up uh, Brian Gundy in, in San Jose. The San Francisco oh, yeah? garter? That's yes. something I want to yeah. see. That's my, something uh, I want to see. Oh, that is sure. I on my North American list. So we I know where they are because my coworker has permit to handle them, which, you know. Right. To get that, you have to be hands-on for mm-hmm. X amount of hours and species and whatnot. So he knows sure. exactly where they hang out. It's just a lot of the really good populations, you'd be trespassing San Francisco right. Airport. Right. <laughs> so if that's gotcha. the tricky part, but I will find one, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are gorgeous, I, man. I mean, when you look at that snake, and I guess this just goes to the point I was I was making, is just like you look at that snake, it almost looks like it's not real. Right. Yeah. Like people think it's photoshopped. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, wait, what? (laughs) And since you can't own those as pets, the next closest thing in look and everything would be the Oregon red sided mm because they look very similar and they also have a blue dorsal. Yeah. So if you want to scratch that itch in your own care, look up uh, Oregon red sided garters. For sure. They're, they're very, very similar, very similar, beautiful snakes. And oh, so here's a here's a cool thing about garter snakes. <laughs> Eric, are you writing that down? <laughs> He's I, I googling it right now. It right now, yeah, I love it. Um, <laughs> you can feed them fish. You know, obviously, when you're doing frozen thawed fish. Oh come um, on, man! <laughs> <laughs> when you're feeding frozen thawed fish, it's good to uh, supplement the the thiamine that right. you know you lose when you're when they're frozen. So like back at, at the Sac Zoo with, with the only facility with a, uh, uh, a giant garter snake on display, only facility in the country with one that was injured, deemed non-releasable, missing an eye sort of thing. Ooh. Yeah, there you go. 
Sertalis consinus. Con consinus. Um, so you can thing, literally man. thaw fish and feed them fish. That's awesome. Holy shit. That's yeah, cool. the red yeah. sides and the checkers are, are absolutely yeah. beautiful. Garter snakes are are underrated. Everybody's uh, kind of avoided them because the whole taboo of oh they're they're stinky, they're they're runners, they're musky and all that stuff. But dude, I have you seen the color bro? I mean they're amazing. Yeah. Like not even getting into the albino checker and any of those morphs, just looking at some of those localities is unreal. Hundred percent. Yeah. That was really my first snake was a garter snake. Obviously, I think most people in North America, it's probably either that or a corn snake, right? I would Mine think. was a Cali King. Oh, Cali nice. King. Okay. Mm -hmm. right. Yep. Dude, Owen would, would shoot. He'd shit himself right now. We have a, we have a <laughs> pair of some really nice Hypermel uh, Cal Kings in the shop with black bellies, super black heads. They almost look like Eastern Chain Kings. They're so dark. And it's really? a pair from a, a hypermelt project. And I know Owen would be like itching to get his hands on them. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I see a lot of cool cow Kings come through the shop just because they're bred out of state and, you know, they make excellent pets and um, there's some cool varieties to them, man. I've kept them over the years. I tried getting back into them, you know, a few years ago and I just, I wasn't in the right mindset. So I sold them, but uh, they're cool. They're really cool. You know, um, these here um, are, I don't know. Jack Oliver brings up a good point. Night crawlers, you can also feed garters. Mm. Little, actually, so a woman who lives uh, in town, and I know she's got a group of those Oregon red sided garters, and she'll chop up earthworms and night crawlers and chuck those in. There you go. Pyros. Yeah, man. Pyros are, whoo. Because they're from Arizona, they're not regulated in California, so you can have pyros. Here. Oh really? Yeah, the the Mountain Kings in California, you have to have a fishing license, and if it's a Zonata, you're only allowed to have one. So I may have broken that rule a couple times, um, <laughs> but not anymore. You can't prove it. Uh, but yeah, the Pyros, totally different thing, but same look. Nice. Pyros are bad. Yeah. <laughs> Another one that um, I. I will will own at some point one day is uh, Honduran milk snakes. I love yeah, them. those are fun. Talk about colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, it's it's weird. Like, you know, we want to keep a ring. No, I'm not poo pooing on ring pythons at all. But it's like mm -hmm. you're trying to make them look like a Honduran milk snake. You know, orange and black, basically, right? And there's yeah. a species where, you know, you can you can. It looks just like that, and you. We just sort of like, no, it has, I want to make a ring python look like that. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, you can do that, but I don't know. Yeah. There's other species we're trying to, trying to make, like, it's the, the, the poor man's indigo syndrome with Mexican black kings. Like, <laughs> just, get yeah. the damn, just get the damn indigo if you want the indigo. <laughs> no, the one cool thing about colubrids as opposed to pythons is like, for me, like when you're spending thousands of dollars on a species of Python, right. You know, it's uh -huh. like, you're spending all this money and then like you hear colubra guys and they're like, man, that's $300. That's too much. And I'm like, man, <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For like real. right now, the most expensive corn snakes are the, uh, the Amel palmettos. They're like 700 bucks. And that's like, an expensive corn snake you know that's like the equivalent of like a you know four thousand dollar hypo when they first you know were available yeah. sort of thing yeah 
It's just so funny how that perspective, you know, it's, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Totally different, but I guess it makes sense. You know, a lot of those rat snakes produce a lot of offspring kind of readily and mm-hmm. um, even double clutch sometimes. So I always think about that, but yeah. And, and then, you know, you can get the, more. the thing with, and you know, I know there's different laws at different spots and all like that, but like, I mean, if you really wanted to get into locality animals, right. I mean, you should probably pick the spot where you live because you can go and collect them and, mm-hmm. you know, bring them into captivity and, and sort of, uh, you know, what is the, uh, Riley, do you know what the California law is? If you have a fishing license, can you take like a Cali King or something yeah. like that? You can, yep. yep. You can take several in a day. There's, there's Oakland there's, Hill locality. California. Yeah. There's permit <laughs> holder limits as far as how many you can have total. I see. And there are bag limits on how many you can take per day like in one outing sort of a thing in the 24 hour window. Right. And then as far as breeding goes, if you breed them being natives, um, you can give gift babies away. You cannot uh, take money for them. Uh, if you are selling offspring bred from your wild caught in the state, you need to have a captive bred wildlife permit, which is extremely challenging to be, um, permitted to get you have to have a very significant um reason for that the state of california doesn't give those out freely Uh, and then in order to sell them you have to provide a copy of said permit to the buyer so that they can prove that they've purchased that within state bred native legally got it very interesting to give you perspective on how hard it is to get that permit when i was in santa barbara we had a pair of desert iguanas and they were getting up there in age and they're a wonderful species. And uh, I had seen some folks on listservs looking for some and ours would breed all the time and just throw slugs because, you know, our, their diet was off and we weren't really, you know, looking for eggs. But I actually started dialing them in to get good viable eggs and we were trying to get the permits to breed them so we could, you know, have some more in case these two passed and, you know, maybe send a few off to other zoos because they're great display animals. And, you know, my um, permit request was basically on the basis that, you know, these are educational animals. I won't have to take anything from the wild. Uh, we can supply more zoos with them. And, you know, it's kind of the, the whole assurance colony style approach. And they're like, nope, not even with the zoo. They're like, nah, but, you know, I, I can go to Sportsman's Warehouse, go get a fishing license and go down there and pick up however many, you know, the, the losses right. I can. Yeah. And you know, which has more of a, an impact on the wild populations. I mean, it's, it's a no brainer for sure. So they, they have interesting, uh, interesting laws here. CBFW in California is a funny one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I still work with them a lot, so I should, I should watch my tongue, but <laughs> <laughs> Pennsylvania, you can't own, um, any local herbs. Hmm. That's all. So, or a sugar weird. glider, right? You can have, yeah, or a sugar glider. <laughs> or a hedgehog. I don't think you yeah. can have a hedgehog. You can't have hedgehogs or sugar gliders uh, or ferrets in California. No ferrets? Really? Nope. No ferrets. No. Yep. I can't tell you how many people I've met and known over the years that are just like, oh, yeah, we just drove over to Nevada and brought one back. I'm like, <laughs> what good is this law? Well, yeah. I- <laughs> It's yeah, not. Man. It's exactly. Yeah. They can't enforce it. So it's like, why spend taxpayers' dollars 
making these laws and making criminals out of people that are just doing it anyway and you can't enforce it. Like, what's the damn point? Right. You know, just regulate it. How If you're going to regulate it, you know, just make sure people can do it responsibly. That's it. If you're going to regulate anything. So anyway, that's I, I have weird concerns with California's legislation towards wildlife. I understand it comes from trying to protect wildlife, but the it's counterintuitive what they're doing. And so right. it's not necessarily helpful all the time. Yeah. No, I feel you, man. For sure. Yeah. Kaboom vipers are legal in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Venomous is legal in Pennsylvania. I think mm-hmm. it, so if, if you go, I'm not in Philadelphia anymore, but in Philadelphia, venomous is illegal. In my area, in my area, Warminster, PA, it's illegal. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Owen, it is legal. Like you can keep them up there. So the so it's the farther ship specific. Yeah, the, the the more west you go and the more north you go in Pennsylvania, because Pennsylvania is huge. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a huge state. And um, yeah, they're, they're out that way, it's it's definitely illegal to uh, to keep those. Um, hmm. which is. It's just, I don't know, just, I don't know. No permit, no nothing, just, you know. Well, and here's the other thing. Like, even though some states regulate and there's businesses that will and won't sell, there's still businesses that, you know, just put the little disclaimer on their site and they'll sell you whatever, you know. And, like, unless some law enforcement is checking these things and going, it's like, it's it's the wild west everywhere. If you want it to be like, you know, not to point fingers, but underground reptiles, they sell a lot of venomous and they're in Florida and, you know, there's, there's legal ownership in their state, you know, barring certain permits and whatnot. And I know several people out here in California that have purchased through underground just by phoning it in or ordering it online. And, you know, they didn't, you know, obviously they just leave the liability on the buyer, which is kind of reckless. Um, and I know folks out here that have cobras, gaboons, yeah. eyelash vipers, uh, redheaded crates. Yeah, for um, sure. All sorts of stuff. It, it doesn't stop the people that really want it. Yeah. No, there's, there's no doubt it's about like, it. It's like gun laws. It's the same thing. You make shit illegal. They're, they're not going to be like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean it. Here you go. Take it back. Like, no, they don't give a shit. It's the same thing. <laughs> I hate to, I, you know, I hate the idea of, uh, making it more difficult to own reptiles and all, but like sometimes I think maybe Australia's permit system of like you know being on tiers and stuff like that, maybe that would be something that would 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 get around, would be able to uh, circumvent that idea. Like yeah. you know what I mean? Like if you if you made it that way, then it would. But you know, it's a slippery slope, and once you yeah. give them you give a little bit there. It's just our, at least in the U S our government is not going to stop. You know, yeah. they're going <laughs> to, they're going to try to regulate it as much as possible. And the problem is, it's like, you have people that are uneducated and you know, uh, I, I it's, how can you blame them? You know, yeah, it's like, right. if you, if you have a, a bill in front of you and it's, it's like, you don't know anything about it. Nobody's there to tell you anything about it except, one side or the other, then you're sort of, you know, you're going to sort of say, Oh, okay. That makes sense. You know? Okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, hey, yeah. good moment to plug USR. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yes. Definitely. Yes. Especially with they, ju- I don't know the results of that South Carolina Tegu ban. I know they're working hard in New York right now for shipping of all animals, regardless of its exotic nature or not. Um, and there's probably more coming. And I, you know, I talk to folks, um, in the shop all the time. And I know there's going to be regulations coming in California or attempted regulations that are not in the, uh, 
they're not in the limelight right now, but I know it's being talked about in offices and I know there's stuff. Well, there's basically stuff that I shouldn't know uh, sure. because, you know, everybody's looking out for their friends or whatnot, but it's going to, it's going to happen statewide. Every single state at one point or another is going to try and make a stand against some sort of exotic ownership of animals after COVID. Right. COVID brought it big time into the, into the focus and commerce and trade and transport of animals and ownership is going to be a lot more scrutinized in right. every state, especially wild import stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The wild import stuff I imagine is going to become harder and harder to find and acquire because of international regulations after this whole COVID thing. And, you know, China's uh, not giving you know, open, honest information to the World Health Organization about some of the earliest COVID signs, probably because it's embarrassing and because of the suspicions with these wet markets. And these legislators don't see any difference between a wet market and, and a, an exotic animal importer bringing animals into the country. So it's going to be really difficult. And, you know, so USR. <laughs> Tiger King, are you laughing at Tiger King? Yeah. I was laughing at Tiger King. COVID and Tiger King. <laughs> that Carol Baskin. You know that dude, uh, what's his name? Douche Exotic, uh, Joe Exotic. Ah, Joe Exotic. He, uh, he's, he's, <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> he's, he's stuck in prison. He's stuck in prison for like, he's done. And oh, he was he's hope- so done. <laughs> he's already been convicted. Of, he's got multiple felonies and, uh, he was hoping Trump was going to pardon him. Yeah. And so yeah. he had a limo and everything wait outside the prison for him and he didn't oh. go. It was he's so such, good. Like he's a terrible yeah, person. Right? But it's hard good. to also not yeah. feel bad at a, at one extent. Like they should all be in prison, but he's kind of endearing in a weird way. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. After seeing how he treated the animals, I have no respect. Yeah. I'm not saying I line, am not you know? saying I have respect. No, for no, no, no. I know what you're saying. No. Yeah. He's just like a, a lovable, terrible person that you want to be in prison. Yeah. It's like a TV show disaster that you can't stop watching, but yeah. it's sad because it's real. Yeah. I don't like No, but it's mullet. true. Like, it's funny, <laughs> but. <laughs> I, I draw the line at long hair. Flip it up, flip it back, flip it anyway, but not uh, the bullet. <laughs> I love what he did with the tigers. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. We need an Obama impersonator in here now. I can't do that. Oh, wait. Hold on. <laughs> He's getting in character. Let's be clear. The Tiger King guy is uh, he's, he's not a, not the best uh, for, for the country at the moment, but... Uh, We'll pursued, and uh, now the things are back on track. We'll be good to go. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, oh, my God. That was good. That was yeah. really good. I was I'm not impressed. expecting that. Oh, man. So, yeah. Um, wow. How, how did we get here? I don't know, man. <laughs> well, it was the idea that Tiger King also might have changed the public discourse about exotic things, right? Like oh, the term exotic. Didn't it didn't, didn't help. help. Like, we're not yeah. talking about tigers, but the uh the public that's not in our world right they're not educated in what what this is all about they'll just hear exotic and think oh Mm -hmm. the the crazy meth heads from tv you know yeah Yeah, Yeah. for real so that and and, you know again like you said great time to plug uh us arc it's also a great time to you know just be remind yourself and remember that as an owner of these exotic animals you are um, a representative of the community who owns exotic animals and what you do and what you say in any forum. So, you know, if you're talking to legislators, be polite. Uh, If you're sending, 
you know, letters and petitions along with us art stuff, be polite, um, For you sure. know, carry yourself appropriately. You know, I, I talked to some, some folks older than myself that have been keeping reptiles, you know, through the decades and seeing how the perception has changed. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm not, this is a good thing. This is no, a no, good no, thing. I'm, t- <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I'm old and I'm not the saying old guy numbers. With- the old nope. guy with the young guys here. You know? No, no, no. I'm not not <laughs> yeah. touching that one. I'm not touching that one. Uh, no, nothing but respect for everybody who's yeah. come before me. But <laughs> there's some some folks who have been in it and seen it longer than I have. And, you know, when their close friends or relatives found out that they kept reptiles, there was a stigma portrayed like, why are you keeping reptiles? Yeah. That's for tattooed biker weirdos, you know? 100%. Yeah. And now last week, a little bit. Yeah. And now it's much more of a, a profession, a a lifestyle, uh, more socially accepted, uh, affiliated with university research, science, uh, literature, all sorts of things. So there's a a higher level of class and intelligence and research associated with it now. So it's frustrating when you see people kind of abuse the liberties and freedoms they have and just kind of throw it out the window and are kind of just willy nilly and and don't realize like we're always tiptoeing this line of, you know, potentially giving the, the final nail in the coffin to exotic ownership based on what we did. Right. And I think it's important to, to remember that all of us make up the face of this hobby, if you will, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's more important than ever to, to be educated and to try to do things the right way and represent what we do positively mm-hmm. because the way that people that aren't a part of this world view this world is a lot different than yeah. what we need it to be. Mm-hmm. Perception um, is reality for everybody. Yeah, right. And those outside of the hobby see us through whatever lens they've had put in front of them based on their experiences, minimal or not. Exactly. And, and so in that, in that respect, it's a really critical time to think about how we're presenting ourselves Mm -hmm. and, you know, adjust accordingly. (laughs) If you want to hang on to your stuff, you know, we need, we need a, we need a good public opinion. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. Yeah. So support us arc is the way to go in my opinion. Yeah. hundred percent. I need to buy another shirt. My shirt from them has a hole in it, but that's ah, fine. Okay. I'll just buy another shirt. <laughs> yeah, I ought to do the same. Who doesn't like t-shirts? Yeah, that's right. Gosh, that's like, like another. One. It's like another reptile obsession. Yeah, there you go. That's a nice. That's a good one. one. Yeah, it's one, one of my that never happened. Yeah, yeah, that didn't happen. The twenty twenty one. Yeah, right? the logo, the whole. Yeah, the it's, imagery. It's perfect. Great. The chair is empty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's true. Well done. It, it, they meant it to be that way. <laughs> Speaking of Carpet Fest, Eric, are you guys thinking you're going to try and get back into that for this year? Uh, that's a, I don't know. We've talked about it. Um, we've sort of talked about when we would have it, maybe later in the year. Mm-hmm. I'd hate to miss two years, especially since this would have been the 10th anniversary mm-hmm. of Carpet Fest. Um uh, mm-hmm. Which would be would would suck, you know. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I hope. I hope. You know, yeah. maybe. I mean, once everything's more hard. To people say, are vaccinated and right and whatnot, but uh, yeah, 
And then the other part of it is, is that I think that I'd be afraid to have it at my place because I'm afraid that it's going to be one of those things where, um, you know, people are going to be so jonesing to get <laughs> and talk reptiles with fellow keepers and stuff that it might be overload, you know, carpet yeah. zoom call. <laughs> yeah, <there you> <laughs> I don't know if we'd crash that server if there was that many people on it. <laughs> That'd be kind of funny, though. It would be interesting, <laughs> especially with Howard. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't know. I know we've talked about, you know, um, you know, me, Matt, and Owen, and Keith, and we've, we've tried to come up with ideas of, of different places to have it. Yeah. Not necessarily at somebody's house, and um, not that I care that people come to my house, but I do have like a capacity limit. I think that we've right. hit it. You know, I mean, so 130 people in 2019 was too much. <laughs> I think that was at max capacity. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I could fit. Maybe Lucas huge. could fit. That would be about. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the last too. guy on the I'm list. Like little. a hobbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was popping in there somewhere. Right. 10 year, huh? So I was 14 when you did the first one. That's funny. Yeah. And Howard's place in Maryland. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't there like 25 uh, people or something? There was about 25 people there. It was more, actually, more chondro people than it was carpet people. Um, and uh, I learned a lot about chondros that, uh, that, that, that first carpet fest and I actually got my first chondro at that carpet fest. Right. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. It was it's like rubbing shoulders with some of the older um I don't I don't even know if they're even in Condros anymore to be honest, but like uh you know, Greg Stevens and Julie and Buddy well Buddy's still in it, but um, you know, a lot of those Maryland so the the hub for green trees used to be right there in Maryland, you know. Mm. Um Luke Snell, those guys, all those guys were were there. Um and they said, I remember uh, when the last thing I'll say on that is that I remember them, I was talking to them and at the time I was buying carpets, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to get my first chondro and everybody kept saying the same thing. They're like, yeah, they're, they're pretty, pretty easy to keep once you have them dialed in. But, um, once you try to breed them, they die. And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so they're like, don't buy expensive ones. Don't buy like the expensive ones. And I'm like, are they telling me this? So I don't buy them so i don't compete with them or is this like, yeah. and like you know i didn't really know and then i started seeing that yes once you start to breed them and stress them that they, they just kind of feel over and die so <laughs> yeah my my foyer into green trees uh started with a trade no no i bought um uh, a signal hurt mail that somebody was selling he was already older. He wasn't like a crazy extreme phenotype. So, you know, I got him for a good price, but I actually had the laminated, like, you know, uh, lineage that Rico Walter made for that animal and its number. Um, I don't remember. I think it was 07118 or something like that. Anyway. Um, and then I got a little, you know, farm bred Jayapura from Clockwork uh through ryan burke and uh, yep. that thing was great and then i was like well cool this is this is not as hard as i thought they're not dropping dead they're hardy they're doing well they're shedding they're eating i, I was learning about the perching and i was tinkering with enclosures and 
And so I finally was like, I'm going to splurge. And I, I bought a $1,500, like, nice female with a white and blue tail and white eyes with a red cross. And she was, like, from this cool lineage. It was, like, a, it was a Trooper Walsh blue line, high yellow. You know, it had the Ophiological Services high yellow in there. And, um, and she was big, but damn it, she uh, ended up getting riddled full of tumors and dropping dead a year later, so... Uh, and then I was like, well, this sucks. That was a kick in the nuts. And at, at that point I decided that like, if my female dies and I have to purchase another female in order to stay in this project at that price point, I will call it and throw in the towel. And I did. Yeah. And I uh, haven't gone back. So I will one day, you know, I, I just want to hold out for locality Moroccans or, yeah. you know, or God, if Cape York, carpets or cape york mm-hmm. uh chondros ever came into mm-hmm. the hobby that would be where i would go yeah to me there's nothing sweet. better than that green snake with the white stripe man yeah uh, nice pretty, clean line pretty yeah killer. yeah, yeah ruse are cool really, uh, but they're sort of like you know mm-hmm. they don't have as it's not as straight you know but mm-hmm. yeah well there you go look down in the chat you know there was somebody that hit me up the other day. So I, I got a pair of uh, Cape York spotted pythons and um, somebody had uh, mentioned to me that, um, that he knew somebody. Oh, he just produced some now. Okay. Um, <laughs> somebody had mentioned to me that um, there was some imports that were available. And um, I talked to the guy and um, you know, uh, I, I was, I was just blown away by the price. I, I get it. I understand it. But it was like, I think it was like 1300 bucks for one. For and an import? Like, yeah. Damn. I mean, it's all, I guess, because of the demand, but damn. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow. You know, I've had probably over the years, maybe 25 chondros and I don't know, man. They all, it always ends badly for me with them. So, yeah. My experience is limited with my Aru so far, but so far so good. But I guess it sounds like it usually is so far so good until it's not good. So yeah. <laughs> fingers yeah. crossed it continues to be good. I'm hoping yeah. for the best for you, man. I'm hoping yeah. for the best. Yeah. I soon swear. As soon as you get multiple, it's going to be right. odds, yeah, as odds soon increase. As I try to get an Aru mail. <laughs> you know, Matt, I, 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 think, I think that short tails – and chondros fall into that same sort of box of keeping, right? They have very specific parameters that have to be met. And as long as you keep it in those parameters, you're, you're solid, you know, mm-hmm. you're good. It's right. once you start to go a little bit this way or a little bit that way, things start to get, get dicey in my yeah. experience, you know, yeah. I've been um, keeping uh, the way the uh, Justin Julander, Terry, Terry Phillip book, advises to do so you know like quite a bit cooler and drier than maybe what people would have done 10 or 20 years ago and the uh the feeding response has been a lot better since doing that you know yeah it's just interesting they they certainly don't seem to need to be 90 degrees that's for sure (laughs) no 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 no. heck no no but i don't know yeah maybe one day they'll find their way back into my life but (laughs) Not they're going to be. Uh, they will be the last Australian species of python that I go back to. Yeah, you know, I hope yeah. that I have Owen Pelly and Ibercata long before I have Condors again. So yeah, there's just I too many just other cool to, snakes out there. 
Oh man, yeah, I'm telling you. I, I do. I like them. They're they're awesome. I mean, yeah. Know, I I think for me, that's a species that I kind of want to see in the wild, and maybe that'll regenerate that again. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, I think uh actually me and Rob were talking about that trip, Cape York trip, you know, going up there and oh man, there's some cool shit up there. Whew. God damn it. I need to go to Someday. Australia. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I want to go so bad. Ugh, killing me. Killing we'll me. get you there. We'll get you there. No yeah. worries. It'll happen one way or another. Yeah, I was. I, I was. I was getting to relive that uh, with uh, talking with uh, on the first um, episode of uh, the Field Her podcast with Nipper, and I was getting to relive some of that feeling of what it was like seeing Australia for the first time. And mm-hmm. oh man. There's, I'm telling you, you guys will lose your shit, man. You'll be like, <laughs> I already know that. You'll <laughs> lose your shit. Oh my god, yeah. it's the greatest. But I can't yeah. wait. Just finding any Australian reptile in Australia while being is just. Do you guys watch that video I sent you last night? The guy finding the four blackheads in uh, Northern Territory. Yeah, fucking cool, man. They're they what? just didn't care like they looked exactly like the captive blackheads when he picked them up they're like oh what's up (laughs) you know yeah the one the one me and owen you know were the one we had the picture with it was uh very chill that's so cool dude seeing a blackhead is like oh Oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna poop my pants (laughs) pack pack some depends lucas (laughs) wow that was that was a cool find for sure you know, uh, we're all saying the same thing. It's a fucking blackhead. <laughs> Dude, it's a, it's a blackhead. It's right there. Oh, man. They're my favorite right now. They're cool. Right it keeps changing, but yeah. So the next, uh, the next uh, episode of the, on the natural history series is going to be blackhead pythons. So nice. Nice. I'm, I'm working. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I That'll be wait. a perfect. That's the perfect transition to uh, to to we'll close this out and saying uh, definitely. Okay, so let's rattle off all the shows that people need to go to follow the feeds for. You've got the OG Morelia Python Radio. Uh-huh. You've got uh, Carpet Cliff Notes. Right. You've got uh, what? Serpent. Hybrid Corner Student yeah. of the Serpent. Uh, humans of herpetoculture, the field herper, field herping podcast. What's what am I missing? That's six. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, carp, obviously this one, carpets and coffee, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. And then more to come. And then, uh, yeah. As you're watching this, don't forget to uh, down it down below. Hit the like and subscribe and notification button. Let's help get the uh, the NPR Network YouTube channel growing. Um, keep it going. We promise there will be more than just live videos on there in time. We'll get there. Yep. And uh, Damn COVID. Yeah, because we we have a lot of plans. We want to get out there and do some filming and put together some videos and stuff. So as soon as we traveling is a little more feasible, and then. Uh, uh, MPR network on the Teespring store now, correct? It's changed. Yeah. Yep. So it's yeah. not, you don't search NPR store, you search NPR network and you right. can find all the, all the swag you need. You can get yourself a uh, fancy carpets and coffee mug. 
you can go get yourself t-shirts from previous carpet fest like the ones eric's wearing the the poster on the wall back there there's that shirt i have that one oh, yeah. made it to that one yeah <laughs> over here yeah i am not showing off my muscles <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah so there's and then of course there's uh there's Patreon. Gotta gotta support Eric and Owen's uh, legacy. <laughs> support them because they've they've been doing so much for us, and it's just another easy way to give back. Right now, it's the the only tier is uh, the five bucks uh, yeah. a month. Buy us a cup of coffee. But before we came on the show today, we were talking about some plans in the works. We're gonna try and do some more. Um, See if we can't figure out a, a collaboration with some with an actual coffee roasting company and, and try and do something cool and you know incorporate a, a coffee segment in the beginning and then also bring some more tiers where you can get involved in that uh, yeah. as as a listener and a supporter. So we'll we'll get those rolled out soon enough and then you can keep uh, keep supporting them for doing the work. Yeah, yeah, totally appreciate it. It's uh, yeah. You know. Not something that we went into willingly, I guess. We kicking and screaming doing it, but uh, yeah, I and it's it's understood. It's understandable. Yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely some social taboo and stigma against you know crowdfunding. Some people don't like it. Some people understand what it does, and you know it's all good. But I I firmly believe that you guys are doing one hell of a service to the herpetoculture community and uh, just herpetology in general even if it's just you know the hobbyist private sector it's it's important to me and i know a lot of people find a ton of value in you know what you guys have built with carpet fest and the show so you know that's why i took my hat off hats off so you guys you guys (laughs) deserve it yeah there you go um we're gonna do um so owen and i so this tuesday we just recorded a show with uh justin julander talking about his new book um the knobtail complete knobtail um, that was actually a really good episode. Nice. Uh, so that'll be out Tuesday. Awesome. And then this Thursday, Owen and I will be doing the live stream for NPR. Um, so just come Excellent. back to this channel right here and uh, you'll be able to follow with us live. I like doing that. It's like the old school days of yeah. uh, chat going. And you know, yeah. I will be there to heckle Owen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, also an Owen Pelly and OnlyFans. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so hopefully good things to come, um, yeah, more and more, uh, trying to do, uh, good things for the hobby. So if enough people demand a squirrel introduction on the live stream, it might happen. It's going to happen. (laughs) It's up to you, the listener to get Archie, Archie is Archie Archer, 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 the squirrel. Yeah, we'll get. Oh, you know what? Oh, what, you know what we should do for the Teespring store is make some squirrel merch and not tell him. <laughs> that well, um, even if we told him, he'd probably say, "When did this happen? <laughs> you didn't tell me this." <laughs> yeah, it'll make some offhanded comment about interns or some shit. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he loves that feeling of power, and then yeah. I just go and say, "Yeah, but I'm your boss, so shut up." And then he'll yeah. be like, oh, "Very good." <laughs> No, I'm not anybody's boss, but I like to tell Owen I'm his boss. Yeah. <laughs> He's the only one I like to. Maybe uh, we'll have a, a squirrel wheelering off a house for the oh show. My God. <laughs> oh, nice. And then whoever uh, whoever was crafty and clever enough to send Owen a bunch of uh, Bigfoot seasonings and spice. <laughs> 
he lost <laughs> his shit. <laughs> he he was gumming out. He was us. He, he was uh, yeah, he's like, who sent this to me and why? Oh man, <laughs> it wasn't he one was of the interns. So he you thought for sure it was either Lucas or myself, and I wish I could take credit for something that clever. That was wow. amazing. The best I've ever done was I bought a roadside magnet up in Oregon of a, a Bigfoot yeah. head smoking a joint and mailed it to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So kudos That's to whoever great. did that. That was funner and shit. Oh yeah. yeah. You really pushed his button. <laughs> yeah. The, you pushed the big red do not push button on him. It was great. Yeah. It was yeah. great. So Love we all got to witness that. Uh, all right. Well, you guys want to throw out your personal stuff to you? You want to have folks, they, they should support you as individuals as well. Right. Sure. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, so Eric is uh, E.B. Morelia, and Lucas, you're uh, Centralian Exotics. Did I get that right? Yes. You got it. That is harder than it looks. Wow. Right, isn't it? (laughs) Hold on. There we go. Okay, yeah, yeah. I did it first try. Wow. Uh, Instagram, YouTube, yada, yada, yada. Oh, and I did a little Teespring thing, too, (laughs) for fun, if you want to check that out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Plug that. Uh, yeah, so I slapped a Brettles python and a green tree python on some cool merch. And if you if you want that, I'm going to one of my tattoo artist friends is designing some other stuff. So I'll keep uh, keep updating that shop with nice. cool designs. Cool. And uh, yeah. Who doesn't want a bread life shirt, man? I mean, right. Bradley shirt. I keep see. I, it's going to take a while for me. People. I'm sorry. I don't know if I care enough to change. I that. think I think I'm going Centralian. I think I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to be like, look, I can't keep it straight. It's just I try to go with Brettles most often, but yeah. Yeah. dude, I, I, I knew a guy who used to call him Brendeli and I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> this is English. Do you say Brendeli Python? No. Where is an an M or an N in that word at all? Like, ah, oh, is this? <laughs> Here, people they just made you added up. a few extra vowels and consonants there, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, on that oh, note, good. I think we threw everything out there. All the uh, the viewers and listeners go forth and cross pollinate all the social media and <laughs> obey. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> and we'll all catch right, y'all guys. next week for some more carpets and coffee. Uh, have a good one. <laughs> Later, Jess.